Tell them Eric Draven sends his regards. Walk out of here. They're gonna race your sorry ass. You're nothing but street freaks here. Street freaks, you motherfucker. Is that gasoline I smell? No, man. No. No. to our listener donation special. This is a very special edition of Do You Expect Us Talk? I'm Becca, your host, and as always joined by Chris and Dave. I would just like to start by saying a big thank you to Ken Mirza for his kind donation so that we can review 90s cult classic The Crow. I, I, I have not been able to wait to get to this because it's always nice to do any old toss for money. Yeah, any but old, it's a cult classic. I mean, any any old cult classic for uh, for a kind donation to our podcast. Anyway, <laughs> in case you didn't know, this film stars Brandon Lee, Michael Wincott, Ernie Hudson, <laughs> Michelle Davis, Fia Sheenas, and Boiling, with a score by Graham Revell. That really surprises me. Um, script by David Shaw and John Shirley, based on the comic series by James O'Barr, and directed by Alex Proyas, and released in 1994. From the director of Gods of Egypt. <laughs> I was just about to say he's, that. <laughs> he's had a really, really varied career. Yeah, Really right. varied. It's literally from the sublime, from the half, to, the, sublime yeah. to the ridiculous. From the half-decent to the utter bilge. From literally yes, to this, which yeah. was, you know, The Crow, which was a box office and, and, and cult success, to Gods of Egypt. <laughs> Well, he did like in he did this and Dark City, which you can kind of see like the the parallels between. And then it was just like a long gap before he did I Robot, unless I'm missing another film. I don't think I am. Okay. Um, and then it was just along those lines, like Knowing and um, Gods of Egypt. Um, Nicholas Cage was in Knowing. Yeah, that's not never, so that's not always promising. No, uh, it, it was in that period where he was just turning up in absolute dreck. Like yeah, um, like Bangkok Dangerous era, yeah. Where he had like a, a, a like a funny funny like different haircut each film, which right. felt odd. Yeah, um, that's the funny thing with Nick Cage. If you look through his filmography, there's some gold in there. There just is, but the quality control's not always what it should be. And then I read fairly recently he's had tax problems for years, so mm. that might explain it. He's doing um, it for the money. I have to admit, I've not seen Knowing, but I remember, I remember yeah, it coming right. out to pretty shitty reviews. Yeah, and Gods of Egypt is one of the the worst films I've I've ever seen. It it's worth seeing just to, just for the you car got, crash. You have to see it though. It's it's absolute car crash filmmaking. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say that it's not entirely boring, but it is like it, it it's not very good. It it's 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 good for like for you know, bad watching. You want if you really want to watch a shitty film just to have a laugh of it. It'd probably be good good for, for if we did a commentary on it. That'd probably be like work. It's, well. it's one of those as well where you look at the cast in it and you just go, "I can't believe they've all signed up for this, and they're all really bad in it as well." So it, it's quite kind of poorly made. Yeah, I mean, you've got you know Jeffrey Rush, Chaswick Boseman, 
that guy from Game of Thrones whose name I forget to be honest with you, Gerard Butler's in it. Um, it, it Should I put I mean, one? Whatever. <laughs> Um, Anybody listens to entertainment, then I'll know who's shut up, but but. I feel like they give. I, I feel like they give him a hard time. To be honest with you, uh, old Komodo. I think he, he just kind of hates them for the sake of it. To be honest, but well, I, I think speaks you, the truth, but he's very opinionated. So well, you he, say he, the he's truth. The, he's speaks, he speaks his truth, and I, that's fine. <laughs> and actually, I always like like to listen to him. I don't really bother with the show because, like I say, who does a two-hour podcast? That's mental. But. Um, <laughs> But I do pick out isolated reviews to see what he he thinks of it. So I'm obviously always interested. He's got a tin ear for comedy. So his opinion on comedy is utterly meaningless to me. But he knows it's a tin ear. I've got a tin ear for horror. So his opinion on horror is irrelevant to me because I don't really have as good an appreciation of it as I should. And everything else, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear what he has to say. Gods of Egypt was a terrible film, though. So to to actually see... and And actually... His career might have been... I mean, iRobot was a big-budget film at the peak of sort of Will Smith's fame, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like he, in he the was, early, early the noughties. Star of the world. Yeah. Yeah, 2004, I think it was. Yeah, it was that sort of I Am Legend kind of era where he was like the most bankable movie star at the time. He yelled that for quite a long time, like about a decade, really, didn't Like, sort of more or less. I mean, it's difficult to say because you can yeah. look at different film stars at different times. But if you know, and in a given year, you could pick you know different stars who've had a good year or two. Mm-hmm. But over a sustained period, probably from the sort of turn of the century onwards, he was an extraordinarily bankable star. And I think it was kind of, I'm guessing here without looking, maybe I ought to look, but it, it was um, probably after something or somewhere around 2007, somewhere like that. It started to fade away, and I'm trying to think why it's that. Start, was basically when he started pushing his kid in his films. Seven pounds and things like that. Mm. I am Legend but, was two. But seven pounds was really popular. It was one of those like. I don't remember it being that big. That was all. Mm, yeah, no. He did Hancock in 2008, which gets mixed reviews. Then he did Seven Pounds the same year. Then he did Nothing Till Men in Black Three, and then it's After Earth, Winter's Tale, which I think was called New York Winter's Tale here. Uh, Focus I quite enjoyed, but it wasn't exactly, you know, um, a, a huge box office smash. Uh, concussion, and then sort of Suicide Squad. So, yeah, there's no doubt he's been less bankable over the last decade. No, I think Suicide Squad was meant to be not, not a comeback, but I guess maybe some sort of a comeback. I think he's him. in the same, a similar position. I don't know what star I was going to name there, actually. Sean Connery sprung to mind, but there, there are very few parallels. Oh, when, when he appeared in um, but, The no, Extraordinary what, Gentleman, no. No, no, what I'm saying is... Well, yes, actually, you are sort of right in a roundabout in, way. In terms of a, a, a star coming back to like a comic book? Property. No, uh, sort of. What I'm getting at is there was a period where Sean Connery was offered all these great things and he turned them down. Oh, I see. He turned down The Matrix. He could have been Morpheus. Oh. He trained down... He turned I thought it was going to be Neo. No, he was going to be, yeah, yeah, Aldo. Um, Aldo, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I generally thought he was off a Neo. No, no, he was, he was, he was down for the Morpheus role. Oh, okay. As I understand, if there's any Morpheus. Matrix fans out there, correct me nicely on social media because it's only what I've heard. But he was, he could have played Gandalf, mm. uh, and in both cases, he said he didn't really understand the script. And there was something else as well I've forgotten, and that's how he ended up. Sorry, I just realised you're talking about Sean Connery. I thought you were still talking about Will Smith. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I was like right. thinking, <laughs> right. Do but you yeah, know what, though? I didn't bat an eyelid that you thought Sean Connery at seventy was going to play. 
No, but that, that was actually true. Will Smith was offered the part of Neo, but he turned it he down. Was. So that, he that's was. why I got confused because you were like, "Yeah, sorry, go right, on. okay." Well, yeah, but you imagine Will Smith playing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will, 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 Will Smith doing Morpheus. Yeah. But there was a period of time where Sean Connery, in this case, but <laughs> there I was, is no spoon. I brought this up in, <laughs> in order to apply it to Will Smith anyway. That he t- turned down scripts because he either didn't understand or they didn't kind of a- apply to him or he didn't feel right for them. They turn out to be massive smashes. And so when the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen came along, he was like, well, I don't understand this either, but I keep turning down stuff that superficially looks a bit like mm-hmm. this. So he took that with all the same reservations, you know. And it, at that stage, he was very, very late in his career. Didn't really, really know what he was looking at. Will Smith, I've heard different things with him. I mean, he's been offered roles. I mean, he was offered Django and Chained and turned it down because he argued he wasn't the lead. Well, actually, I could make that argument about Django and Chained, but it's still not the role you turn down. And he always wanted the right to rewrite dialogue and all that sort of thing. Well, you don't rewrite Quentin Tarantino. Um, he ought to edit himself a bit sometimes, but you don't really rewrite him. Um, so I don't know if that's got anything to do with it. I don't know if that's got anything to do with the fact that he be. faded away. Um, I mean, nothing that lasts forever anyway. I mean, I think nothing it's... Nothing lasts forever. I mean, I think part... I mean, he is like a full-fledged movie star. And, Still, yeah. Um, I think... Yeah. So, but then that, with that, there's come some things that just don't see... I can't see him as Django Unchained. I, and maybe that would have been a different film, but I can see him in more blockbuster and maybe some Academy Award-type films. I would have liked to have seen it, but that's mainly because Jamie Foxx, who I often like in things, I yeah. find really bland in that. Yeah. And it might be that that's what he was trying to do, beating down Slave and that, but when it's your central character... Well, we talked about it in review not that long ago, but, I mean, I think the, the point we're getting around to saying here is, obviously, Will Smith, who was the biggest star in the world at the time, arguably... Um, it's certainly been him and Tom Cruise for the last, you know, 15 years. And this is pre-couch jumping for Tom, 2004. Um, but iRobot was a pretty solid performer, as I recall. And it was actually pretty uh, well-reviewed, as I recall, as well. Uh, not well, but decent. And I'm just calling it up now. It was quite actually, well circulated as well, because I remember okay. keep seeing it on, like, uh, DVDs and TV and things like that. So it was, like, quite... Um... It was quite like sort of film that was actually watched by quite, quite a few people, even on home release. Yeah, yeah. I ran right out, right out of there, bought some Nike and an Audi. And, yeah. <laughs> Converse. Um, so, you know, I think I, I've called out this guy for doing Gods of Egypt. Um, but we have to remember that whilst he hasn't done a lot, it's hardly like all his stuff was direct. I didn't love iRobot, but it was competent enough. Mm. Um, and I think this was his debut, wasn't it? Yeah, and what did he do before this? Was it like, I imagine it's a lot of music videos. Uh, you would think, wouldn't you? It probably was, yeah, uh, lots of music videos. He looks like a music video director. This looks exactly. like a, a lot of Sting video. as well. Uh, let's have a look. Oh, Crowded House, even. Um, Fleetwood Mac. And I'm some other bands that I don't recognise, unfortunately. Sorry. Well, he, he, he worked with In Excess, Crowded House. And Sting, obviously. Uh, yes, now I don't know if that's. The, oh! Oh, that was in that. 1987. I didn't even know they were still going there. You know, in their original, original. Um, Legendary. Yeah. Uh, yes, Mike Oldfield, credit us. Yeah. So okay. So difficult to know what to make of this guy because uh, his stuff's a bit all over the place, isn't it? I think in terms, of, if you look, follow follow the trajectory through, um, 
you can see the kind of style of editing as well. Obviously, music videos are famously kind of short, sharp, choppy cuts. Um, and this one kind of follows it as well. But there's kind of a lot of, you have to com convey a message in a, a short amount of time. Um, but you can kind of follow the, the art style, certainly of music videos through through this film. So he's kind of taken what, you know, taken what, what he's learned through cutting his teeth on music videos and applied it here, I think, in terms of kind of the, the art style of it and the fluid, um, fluidity of the camera. Um, and the choppiness of the editing as well. It's very uh, MTV post Nirvana. There we are. I think that's what I was getting well, at. There's a fair bit of grunge in the, the yeah. soundtrack. Grunge, goth, People are pointing kind of out stuff. the goth in it, and they're absolutely right. But I think exactly. the first song we hear is Alice in Chains. Definitely. I think this is um, the as yeah. um, as Bob the Bird, Bob Eagle pointed out to us. Um, obviously, bands like The Cure and that as well. Who he saw at High Park. Amazing. I wish I was there. Um, but it's like, yeah, if you if you grew up like in the nineties, like late eighties, early nineties, and grunge, goth, that sort of stuff, you know, this this film belongs to a generation. It almost slips outside of his time, and I think that that's actually how long it takes to make films, just because this was released a month after Kurt Cobain shot himself, um, and so the the initial wave of the popularity of this stuff was starting to fade. So, you know, within a year or two of this being released, it was starting to look a bit dated and sound a bit dated. Uh, but that's not necessarily a flaw. It's um, It was almost like a time capsule of itself at that time as well. It was almost like a snapshot Polaroid. Yeah, here's the bands we used to listen to and here's the slightly... Um, here's, here's the clothes we used to wear, here's the makeup we used to wear. Well, the slightly affected air of... Uh, melancholy that, that goes yeah. with that sort of era anyway this is pre certainly in this country it's pre it's pre brit pop and everything like that oh, from the mid 90s onwards the whole tone changed the early 90s were kind of um dour in a good way it's kind of my yeah. era which probably explains a lot about why i'm the way i am but um like american as well because i think uh i think you know if being over here, I think Britpop kind of like took over. I think if you're over in the states, it would have been a bit slightly a bit different. You know, it would have yeah. I would say Britpop more... is obviously very much like a British thing. Obviously, you're like um, Oasis, pop, um, pop bands like that as yeah. well. I think it was very much obviously. You know, they they managed to cross the ocean, um, become famous overseas. But it was very much obviously like Spice Girls and things like that. Sort of towards the mid to late nineties, it was very much, you know, very British, um, but quite insular as well. So it took a little while for it to travel overseas, yeah. Um, but yeah. But we can only talk to our, our 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 memories, and sort of this is the year definitely maybe was released. Mm. You know, Kurt Cobain kills himself, and just within a couple of years, you know, it, it's sort of Oasis Blur. Um, what were the other one called? Bittersweet Symphony. Oh, the, the verb, 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 yeah. The verb and other things uh, like yeah. that sort of dominated here for three or four years. Yeah. We had like Stowe Rose as well. Like they were like. Just on the brim. Coming out of Manchester as well. Manchester was a big driving, yeah, yeah. driving factor coming away from London. That's before and, this. I know, but sort of like that kind of got kind of bubbling up away from London, outside, you know, the other big cities as well. Yeah. Well, that that's more sort of 88, 89, 90, something like that. Mm. Certainly, I think the first Stone Roses album's 89, and the second Coming was 93. I think. I might have that wrong, because I'm not a big fan of any of it. To be yeah, honest. the Stone Roses well, are right, overrated bands. Not, not saying they're bad, they're just overrated. Yeah, sure. they, they caught they captured the zeitgeist, and nobody but the people who listened to them could understand why. Uh, and 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 they and they dropped the ball. I mean, they could have continued it, but they but then a waste of there to pick it up, and they kind of like stole their glory, mm. essentially. In my opinion, uh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, we could say this about Proyas as well with his his output. I mean, you've actually got to do the work. 
you actually have to keep producing work. You know, if you start letting half a decade go by and all the rest of it, no one gives a shit. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I see like a lot of like parallels to this than the Matrix as well, because you have this and uh, you have Dark City, and then you pair that with you know, you kind of sort of see where some of the DNA or some of the influences might have blended into the Matrix, and it's it's not that far off, really. You have like a few, you know, mm-hmm. John Woo Hong Kong action style, like um, you know. Particularly with like two guns at hand and the and the sound effects, it's like yeah, you can kind of like see 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 what the similarities yeah. with the like, the video type pop soundtrack, you know. Now we got to sort of deal with the elephant in the room here. During the making of this film, the leading actor was shot dead. Um, what? Was on... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> As if you I what? I, I just thought he retired after this. What do you mean he, yeah, he's dead? You didn't, reali- you didn't realize Ernie Hudson's gone. No. Oh fuck. Um... Oh. Oh dear, we keep it classy here. Um, <laughs> Brandon Lee was was shot uh, about a year before this was released because I think I want to talk about a few things around Brandon Lee before we get in, into the film itself. I think the few things that occur to me is now this film looks a bit cheap to me, and I'm wondering if this was effectively a director video that actually got retooled into something more. This bit I am a little bit uncomfortable with. It's a bit like saying, would Heath Ledger have won the Oscar if he hadn't died? Well, if your answer is anything other than yes, you're almost saying you think he didn't deserve it. So it's an awkward conversation, but I'm wondering if this film was was even destined for a big screen release because we'll talk about some of the opening scenes where I just think, Christ, that looks weak even for its era. I wonder where where these scenes are, because the scenes that, that were shot... Um, and then when obviously when he had the accident that, that caused his death, for example. No, I know what's retooled around his death. Yeah, the sort of thing is it depends on kind of like where they're placed in that as well. Yeah. But they had to do a lot of extensive like sort of CGI. It was like burgeoning and back in those days as well. Didn't do that much. We'll come on to because there's no, couple, there wasn't so a lot dude, of it. One scene that got retooled because the film starts in a strange place, and it's entirely for that reason. But I wonder, a would it have been a, a big screen release, and, and do we think this film is any different for what happened? Um, in a real sense, I mean, the odd scene might have been retooled, obviously. What do we think Brandon Lee might have become? And have we seen anything other other of his? And I'll go first on the other of his. I haven't even seen Rapid Fire. This is the only Brandon Lee product I've ever seen. Uh, I have. Oh, I've seen Rapid Fire. Uh, I've seen um, uh, the, sort of the showdown in uh, Tokyo with a film we did with Dolph Lundgren. Um, right. which is it, it's under 80 minutes long and it's and it, and it and it's just like a really stupid really 80s action flick but you know it's it's it, it it's one of those things that like you know it's harmless to track down but you know don't expect too much of it but it is kind of fun if you're into that um rapid fire again is a very generic early 90s action film but he's really, I imagine that but he's really good in it like the, what what really, what I really do like about Rapid Fire is the action scenes are pretty are, are actually are, are pretty decent, but it's just wrapped around really kind of generic like silly actioner. But um, so yeah, so that was like uh, he, he was he was really good at doing the action stuff. I think when it when it comes to say looking at Rapid Fire uh, and 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 the Crow, you could clearly tell. I think. He, he did have uh, a screen presence. Like I think he would have been a good 
movie star. Uh, as to as a, as a, as in terms of like being like a great actor, it's a bit uncertain. I, I, I think he's, I think he he showed potential to be more than you know just Bruce Lee's son, and I think he would have been like you know he, he you know he was good looking. He was able to he you know to sort of like pull off fight fight moves convincingly, um, and and in the Crow he, he did kind of show some sort of range you know he did he did i like, had have a bit of humanity in his performance so i think we would have had a potential to see what could possibly be a genuine movie star uh in terms of being like an like an oscar winner actor i don't know uh it could have he could have just ended up being like just another you know action a- action person but you know i think it, even if it just came down to that he would have been a fairly decent one, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched this expecting Bruce Lee Jr. Yeah. Obviously, the year I didn't see it in the cinema. I saw it very soon after it came out, though, because there's a lot of buzz around this film for lots of ghoulish reasons. And um, I will read you all, listeners, a bit from Wikipedia in a minute, just in case, just for context, that most of you will have heard of this. Most of you will know, but there'll be one or two of you statistically who are going, what, the leading man died, what happened? So I will explain all that in just a moment and read you a little bit. But um, and we'll explain during the film where that all happened and why it was retooled and everything else, because uh, it happened on the set. It happened on the set. Now, the moment it happened is not in the film. They obviously worked around that, but um, it, it would have been. I mean, the camera was pointing at it as it happened. Um, but I was expecting Bruce Lee Jr. Well, first of all, I would not in or out of makeup have um, placed him as the son of Bruce Lee had I not known. Had I not heard of him? I'd heard of him. Rapid Fire was in like video shops. So even even as much as going past in your car, or well, not my car because I was too young at that stage, or was I? Anyway, a bus, a car, whatever, you go past a video shop, Rapid, a poster for Rapid Fire is in the window. So I'd heard of him. I'd seen a, fi- a photo of him, but that's about it. I wouldn't have placed him as the son of Bruce Lee. And actually reading up afterwards, he had a lot more action range than I realised because he studied all his father's forms. <clears throat> of fighting and he'd been sort of paired with very very good teachers very young so the chances are he would have made a lot of sort of martial arts films going forward which this kind of isn't this is this i don't really place it that way so i think i I definitely saw a man who was standing on his own two feet um and it's yeah there's a bit of mythology around bruce lee but it's not like bruce lee was um robert redford or something bruce lee made four films before he died they released a couple of cash-ins afterwards, um, and only one of those was in the English language, Enter the Dragon. So I, I do wonder if Bruce Lee's name is the massive, massive cash-in that cynics might accuse him of. I mean, given, you know, disregarding like kind of what actually happened, as as a film choice, you know, it, it, it's, it's not like your typical big you know, big, big star, like, ca- uh, cash-in job that you'd, you'd think, because, like, he spent the majority of fil- film with his face co- covered. He's got, like, limited dialogue. Uh, it's, His you know, hair's lank and wet and over his face half the time. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is it's someone... It's all at night. It, it, it is someone who's trying to, like, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of stretching myself. Even, even at the beginning, you know, I could just... I could, like, bang out on, like, um, two or three other 90s action... action films first and then then try and like sort of stretch my legs a bit but 
he's already trying to like, no, okay, well, I'll do this. It's kind of actiony, but um, it's it doesn't have any sort of kung fu or anything like that in it, and also it's gonna, you know. I mean, Test what, the acting what, rate somewhat. What concerned? What would have concerned me? Because I, I didn't know anything about Rapid Fire. Not even read yeah. up on it. I, I remember that poster because it was in video shops for years, and probably in the natural run of things, it was probably due to come out of being promoted in the windows of these stores around the time he died. So, all of a sudden, Rapid Fire, which should have been about to be replaced by Jurassic Park or something else, stayed in that window. So that everyone kind of knows that poster, whether you know it or not. And it isn't because it's iconic or fantastic to look at. It's just because it was kept in view for a very long time, given what happened. Um, but what you've just described of it and who's in it and little sh- a showdown in little Tokyo and stuff like that, it, it does sound like he's going to have a career of sort of in it before the crow, your worry would be that he's going to have a career that sort of sub Jean Claude Van Damme and mm. a bit under siege sequels do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they have their place and they have their admirers, but that wouldn't necessarily become anything. The Crow might have been a game changer, but we don't know because what the Crow ended up being is necessarily changed by the fact he died during the making of it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell. He could have moved on to do more drama or he could end up doing like more action stuff. But... Who knows, he he might have ended up as Neo in The Matrix. You just don't know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's probably not a bad, you know, alternative prediction. Because actually, if you look at his build, it's not a million miles from that era of uh, Keanu. No, definitely. I mean, he could have been been in speed. (laughs) Or he might have turned it down and done Wild Wild West. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Giant of the third third act, I'm in. <laughs> and and that, then his career would have declined, and he could have come back as like uh, you know like playing John Wick, and you know where's Kenny Reeves' career just uh, doing rom coms? You know it's yeah. you know it's. Um... I think we're imagining he would have exactly the same career. I'm not sure about that, but yeah, there are films that came out in the next few mm. years that he'd have been the right age and the right type for. You know, my, you know, you think of Tarantino's appreciation of Eastern cinema. Well, might he have said, I'll tell you what, you play Seth Gecko. And then he might have ended up with George Clooney's career. You just don't know. <laughs> it's impossible to well, know. This film in and of itself, as we get into it, I, I just, it has a slightly, I'm talking budget for anyone listening, not necessarily inherent quality, but it feels a bit direct to DVD or direct to video, just yeah. a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of it that looks cheap. And I, and I was watching, I've watched it twice now for this, and I thought, this is, um, Christ, the effects in the mid-90s were worse than I remember. And then I thought of things like From Dust Till Dawn, where there were some really ropey effects in that. And I was thinking, no, I've picked two pretty low-budget examples. And this is down as having cost $23 million, But that will have included like all the reshoots and digital trickery they needed to do after his death. That's cheap. It, well, it's fairly cheap, but From Dust Till Dawn was something like $17 million a couple That's of years cheap. later. <laughs> So it's even cheaper. Yeah. But I do wonder but, if but, but, but Rodriguez is known for like being really like Well th- really... this is a man who made yeah, he made it made he made his first film for seven thousand dollars. So yeah. He does a lot on the budget. Yeah. Um but even so, uh I do wonder if this film was, was actually meant to come in an awful lot cheaper than, than it did, and it was just the fact that they thought, no, we will finish this for him. I'm actually looking at it now. Uh the right. I do have it in front of me. 
After Lee's death, the pre- I'll read you the bit about the death first. I'm going to read two parts of this article, sort of the wrong way round. Um, after Lee's death, the producers were faced with the decision of whether or not to continue with the film. Lee had completed most of his scenes for the film and was scheduled to shoot for only three days. And then I'm just going to skip a little bit. Uh, Paramount, which was initially interested in distributing the Crow theatrically, originally a director video feature, opted out of involvement due to delays in filming and some controversy over the violent content. Da, 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 da. Miramax picked it up with the intention of releasing it in theatres and ejected a further $8 million. So basically, this was a $15 million film that was on the bubble as to whether to go direct to video. And Miramax pick, picked it up and put some more money into it to finish it off. And not only that, all jokes about what Weinstein and what they are now aside, Miramax are a lot more adult than one of the more mainstream studios mm. would have been at that time. So they can get away with it. And if you ever get any more, There were newer and hipper kind of... Um... Not only that, if you get cold feet, sling it out on Dimension. Yeah. So, um, but I said I would read the little bit before that. Uh, okay. So he died uh, March 31st, 1993. Accidental shooting on set. Now, uh, the character of Fun Boy, played by Mike, Michael Massey, one of the earliest scenes we see in the film, he goes to shoot the uh, Eric character like from quite close range. It was when they did the original um staging of that so in the scene in which lee was accidentally shot lee's character walks into his apartment and discovers his fiance being beaten and raped by thugs actors michael massey's character fires a it doesn't matter on the gun uh revolver on lee as he walks into the room a previous scene had using the same gun had called for inert dummy cartridges fitted with bullets but no powder or primer to be loaded in the revolver now we think we know what that means but bear in mind we're recording in a country where we've never fucking seen a gun um, for close-up scenes which utilise a revolver where the bullets are clearly visible from the front so where you have to put bullets in the gun so people can see them uh, but they don't require to be actually fired dummy cartridges provide a more realistic appearance than blank rounds which have no life, uh, no bullet instead of purchasing commercial dummy cartridges this is where they went wrong the film's prop crew hampered by time constraints created their own by pulling the bullets from live rounds dumping the powder charge then reinserting the bullets However, they unknowingly left the live percussion primer, I don't even know what that is, in place at the rear of the cartridge. At some point during filming, the revolver was apparently discharged with one of these improperly deactivated cartridges in the chamber, setting off the primer with enough force to drive the bullet partway into the barrel where it became stuck, a condition known as squib load. The prop crew either failed to notice or failed to recognise the significance of this issue. In the fatal scene, which calls for the revolver to actually be fired at Lee from a distance of 12 to 15 feet, the dummy cartridges were exchanged for blank rounds, which feature a live powder and charge and primer, but no bullet, thus allowing the gun to be fired without the risk of an actual projectile. So obviously you see all the sort of smoke or whatever. As the production company had sent the firearms specialist home early, responsibility for the guns was given to a prop assistant who was not aware of the rule for checking all firearms before and after handling. Therefore, the barrel was not checked for obstructions when it came to load it with the blank rounds. Since the bullet from the dummy round was already trapped in the barrel, this caused the 44 Magnum bullet to be fired out of the barrel with virtually the same force as if the gun had been uh, loaded with a live round. And basically, he was shot in the abdomen, went to hospital for six hours of surgery and died on the table at the age of 28. So basically, a, a big, massive cock-up. Yes. Yeah. A, a criminal negligence. That, in, that, in this country, that would be corporate manslaughter. Without any question. Say. Without question. Um, and that's not, about give, that's not about giving any individuals prison time most of the time. But it's the sort of thing that would take down a studio or a production company. 
so yeah that's hideous and it, as i say it's the bit early in the film i actually always thought it was the bit where he was stood on the table taunting them all but yeah was, i mean <coughs> I, I heard i mean you keep things so the, the film kind of have a like a, an urban myth like mythology about or which scene was it when he got you know and that yeah that was one of the early ones and pre-internet we didn't know so yeah. we thought it was on that table and we thought they'd left it in the room so where he smashed smacks into the table hmm. we actually thought they'd left that in uh with a time of benefit of a little bit of time and thought you think well of course not i mean it could have been there but they're not going to leave hmm. the moment where a guy gets shot to his death in the film but uh yeah it turned out not to be that anyway Bear in mind also, this is like pre-internet as well, so like a lot of it was like rumours and you yeah. had no no way of like fact-checking it or or even find, trying to find out stuff yourself. It was just all of like hearsay kind of stuff. I mean, I, I, I always heard it was um, in that, that scene where he confronts Funboy. Yeah, it was Funboy. You think, all right, that scene where he... Kind where of, he shot in the hand? Yeah. Well, not the, not yeah. that shot, obviously, but that yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's actually the scene that when the, the opening scenes where he's like... In, in his apartment, you know, with, with his girlfriend, one of them. In hindsight, that's now obvious because yeah. that's a really odd way to start a film, and we'll talk about that sequentially in a minute. Brenda, uh, uh, Becca, what did you know of um, of Brandon Lee, this film, or anything? Or before you came to it this time, did you know anything of the guy other than Bruce Lee Jr.? I'm sorry to say that I was a complete novice. Um, I've heard of the film, I know a lot about the mythology behind it um, and the circumstances leading up to it, and the fact that it was, it was very much a cult classic. Um, I'd heard of Brandon Lee, I uh, heard that he was the son of Bruce Lee, and he was kind of a burgeoning martial arts star. Uh, but yeah, so unfortunately I'd, I'd never seen this film, um, yeah. rather ashamed to, embar- to admit. Um, and I've not seen, like, like yourself Dave, this is the first film of his that, that I'd seen. A lot of the fuss around it would have died down completely by the time you'd have got there, because you, you were coming up on 10 when it was released. Well, yeah, so definitely. you know, with any side, I don't know what sort of parental oversight you you would have had, but certainly I don't think you'd have been like giving it to watch when it was out in say video no. stores <laughs> to start with. You know, by the time you get to the age where most responsible families, not mine, um, would let you watch it, you know, things like The Matrix were coming out, so it, you know, yeah, and, even really Blade and things like that. that yeah. So there would have been there would have been other things. It it, it had a. It had a notoriety and interest for a period that's now carried in people that sort of remember it, um, because we haven't seen enough, much if like this. If you're coming of age, you know, when mm. or sort of turning sort of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, around the era, then it, w- it would have stuck to you more. So, it's also whereas um, I was ten. So <laughs> it's also the end result is liked. It's a bit of a cult hit. I mean, it was within a couple of months of this, uh, either way, that John Candy dropped dead. Uh, the release of this, but you know, they finished his film with digital trickery, but it was Wagons East, which isn't very good. Right. So, um, I think part of the fact that the film just hit a feel, a tone, a soundtrack, a zeitgeist of the time, although it only just got in under the wire on that sort of thing, does actually propel it on a little bit. But yeah, this could well have been directed DVD and, and might or you know, video, but it, and it might have been had he survived. But there is nothing in what I've just read that suggests it was impossible that Miramax wouldn't pick it up and say, well, if you're unsure about it, we'll release it. So it might have been the same with a couple of scenes just tweaked. We just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of how it looked, um, I, I, I think that's partly just down to its original comic sensibilities. Because it, while it does look very setty, like it, it, very you know, stage in it. Yeah. Um, but the design itself does just look like a drawing. 
you know, if if you just like trade, you know, it, it does, it does just, you know, it it doesn't look real in a realistic world. It does, but very, it does feel very hand drawn or almost like in the you know the first Batman film, you know, with um, that Tim Burton did. It had that in that kind of like not quite real world, you know, and it's uh, you know it's a much more darker, a bit more nightmarish uh, kind of sensibility to it. Uh, so. I don't know. I think I think that that plays a part in terms of like how it looks. Um, in, you know, it doesn't look like, quite look as like it. The money's been spent on it. No, and I'm not convinced it would have been. Um, it, it would have always looked extraordinarily stylized. That mm. was just built into the DNA of the film. And I think if you doubled the budget or trebled the budget, even um, all right, there probably would have been some casting changes. Actually, if you had, you could have whoever you wanted, um, but. I think certain effects would have looked better. The compositing would have looked better. Like the optical effects, like where he's shot through the hand, that looks terrible now. It really, really does. Um, and uh, the, the, the effects that really stand out are right at the start of the film. When you, you, you fly over a, a city, which is clearly um, miniatures, but I don't have a problem with that. That's fine. Um, but the fire effects just look added optically afterwards they look terrible mm. they look quite low res as well so it isn't just that they've composited in fire it's that they've composited it in at quite a low resolution it looks like a video game it? it looks really quite bad and it and it isn't the it isn't the most auspicious start it really isn't i just god that looks terrible slowly going on yeah uh, this is, <laughs> it's not it's not good that way and as i say some of the compositing as we go on for most of the film it doesn't matter i mean I noticed. I mean, I noticed a, f- a few Batman films in it. I mean, I noticed Batman '89, particularly in the church tower stuff at the end. That's very that. But when he's on the street, you know, re- raining heavily. Well, I remember all the Batman Begins um, extras where they basically built a block of a city inside a soundstage, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It never looks real again, and none of this does. And rain machines never quite look like real rain. They look very cinematic because the, the rain looks very dramatic, but it's got a very stylized look to it. And it's um, too. It's not all bad. So milk added in. Yeah, they've done that in the past, haven't they? And singing in the rain, he's actually singing in the milk to make it look as yeah. if it's raining to make, you know, make it look more believable. They did. He didn't end up singing in the cheese, did he? No, <laughs> but actually in reality, rather than singing in the rain, he's singing in the milk. I don't know if that was just like a, a black and white or early colour thing. I don't know if they still had to do it at this stage, but certainly everything looks stylized. And I, I wonder when it's when it's Batman Begins, it's not as much budget as they got for the sequels. When it's Batman eighty nine, it's sort of that they've gone for this sort of highly stylized Tim Burton look anyway. And I'm not quite sure what it is with this. I think it's probably a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, it kind of just looks like a grunge video. I think I would say. I mean, there's probably parallels between that and Tim Burton, but I think it. Just feels like a very much that 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 shared connection of of that MTV kind of grunge rock music kind of st- kind of style, you know, with the flashing images and everything's dark and you know everything's kind of looks kind of moody. Uh, Is there a single daytime scene in this film? Uh. I don't think there is. No, if if, if there are, then it'll probably be scenes, you know, between the detective and, and Ernie Hudson. Um, I, th- I think there may be one or two, but because it's quite yeah, because and the little girls are exploring the um, the arcade and like, like the scene thing that like, that, for example, yeah, but, like, yeah, a couple ma- ones mainly out- at night, yeah, a couple of, like outside in the street or something, but not many at all. 
No. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Because obviously he's, you know, he's kind of very I much wish, I wish the, um, like the, the crow or raven is kind of like the, the caretaker of, of the um, of the cemetery. Um, he's all resurrected. Is he Jesus? Uh, resurrected at night. Um, he sort of mainly sort of stalks the night, doesn't he sort of claiming vengeance and it's meant to be all kind of all, all in one night or, you know, a very short space of time. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's that's the whole kind of like gothic palette as well. Like very much happens kind of at, at night time or between like dawn, you know, dusk and dawn. I mean, I think so. even if it was day, it would kind of like have that colour palette that would make it look like not like very no indistinguishable between the two anyway. It could just look, it just looks like really just look really forecast and grim, and you know you think well, it could be night just for a bit of lighting on the streets, street lamp or something. I mean, in terms of first thoughts for me though, it, it's a very straight up revenge actioner, and in fact, I think my my biggest two worries one going into the film and one as we sort of got early into the film was my worry going in was that I just wouldn't like it, that it would just be a, an absolute product of its era to a fault, you know, because it's so 90s, it it, it hurts. And actually, I, I liked a lot of grunge at the time, but when you watch some of the bands in this now, it's almost funny how angsty they are. You know, I was like an angsty teen at the time and that was, you know, fine and it's very common, but... Um, what looking back on it now, you just go, oh, for fuck's sake, you know what I mean? And as we got through it, actually, it's kind of thin, this film. It's not a lot to it. You know, um, what happens, happens. He's resurrected a year later. He goes and sort of kills a handful of people, and then it's over. It's it, it's rather thin, so I was, I was a little bit concerned I, w- I wouldn't have an awful lot to say about it. Um, actually, there's quite a bit to say about it, uh, both in its stylings and what happened and everything else. I have to say I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I don't... I think um, it was wildly optimistic to sort of produce sequels to it. I don't think this is a film series. I think it, it's it's just necessarily to one note. You can have the crow bring someone else out of the ground who dresses similar, um, but it, it's, it necessitates a certain structure that I don't think would be easy to sort of transcend. Yeah. Um, and his superpower is a little bit like Wolverine's. It's his... It's his um, resistance to, to sort of pain and damage but it's obviously it doesn't have claws and things like that it's not picturesque in the same way he goes places they all try and stab and shoot him um he gets up and they're like oh shit um rinse and repeat so i don't think there was a series here i think there was a one film curio mm. that my just my gut feeling thinks would have got at least a limited release theatrically i think this is too interesting not to but yeah, that's my first thoughts on it. A, 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 a sort of tentative thumbs up. I, I kind of enjoyed it, but I can't imagine coming back to it regularly. I think they tried to make a series and various sequels, haven't they? But I think this, because of Brandon's accidental passing, um, various productions and iterations of it since have been, begin air quotes, cursed and air quotes. Well, I, th- I think it were, you know, obviously his story was done, so it probably wouldn't have been Everett Draven anyway in sequels. Yeah, Unless they retold it, it differently. It, it wasn't. It was always like someone else. I th- it was always like you know a different. The title character is that crow, not him. Yeah. It, it, even though the characters do end up like dressing and putting the, the same. Yeah, they face would on. look the same. Yeah. What did you think of it, um, Becca? Um, I actually quite enjoyed it. <laughs> um, like, as you say, it's very kind of simple. I was expecting because it's like what my my copy, the special edition, 
like one hour 44 45 in there somewhere i thought oh this is it by quite quickly um i was sort of expecting like considering it slammed with a with an 18 certificate um it seems quite tame by today's standards um lots of effing and jeffing obviously violent shooting stabbing things like that um well, we'll talk about the villains in a minute because the villains are ludicrous in most nineties films. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of there was a point. I can't. I would probably say ninety six, ninety seven. I've got this in an Empire magazine somewhere. It's in my archive, so I have to dig it out. Um, I've got a pile of them somewhere. But yeah, there's a point, kind of mid to late nineties. I don't well. I don't know if it was the audience or the films, but kind of cinema in general got a bit smarter. Um, and this is just prior to that, I will say. I will find the article and dig it out. I think I think there's always going to be but, um, a, yeah, a, a late scene anyway, because um, you have the scene where he kind of like he touches the um, the the mother of the the kid they hang around with's arm, and yeah. the, the you actually see like the heroin or you know literally leak from the needle injections. I think any anything remotely that to do with like. Like that, like that, or like you know, intravenous like, drugs. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to get an eighteen certificate. Yeah, they would slap eighteen on that straight away. So I don't think. Yeah, um, I, yeah I think it was always going to get that anyway. Um, mm, of course. No, I was, I was quite surprised at that one because I, you know, that's, that's kind of one aspect that I wasn't, that I wasn't aware of. Um, but again, it kind of goes with the kind of the nihilistic, um, aura that kind of surrounds gothic and gothic tradition. I think we're not. Quite difficult to, to well, I don't know about like goth and, and, and gothic, for example. The two are kind of like meshed together. Um, but no, in a nutshell, I enjoyed this film. It's probably one of the one of the most nineties films I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Um, Get on to why as we go through it. Yeah, obviously it's blind. We were talking about in a previous podcast about sort of eighties films that are very eighties, very of their decade. Yeah. This is probably one of the most nineties films I've watched. Well, there are tro- um, there are things in it I think of as tropes. But I can't immediately tell you where else those tropes appear, right. and we'll we'll come to them. But it's largely in the villains. Well, yeah, I mean, I, the two, two tropes that come to my mind. Um, first one, uh, the black guy always dies first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, first, and the other one, the other main one is like there's always like the one big guy, and nothing happens without my say so. It's always the the kind of like the head on show is like no one really has that that amount of control. Really? Right. No, he's, no, he's always kind of looks the really one, good. The ones I'm not sure about are you always have in nineties films there's an awful lot of like villains who don't get their hands dirty but have long hair. Yeah. Yeah. Quite, quite silky long hair as well. You know, but they look just, really good. Right. Um sort of those ninety suits with the shirt done up to the top but no tie. Think um if you go ever watch um Dangerous Days, any of the interviews with Ridley Scott oh, dressed yeah, like that for a while. Now, the one I'm not sure about where it comes from um, or whether it is in any other film, but it feels so 90s, South Southeast Asian Girlfriend. Yeah, there was a very trend for that. Well, I, don't know where, well. I don't know if I saw that anywhere else, but when I saw it, I thought it was really 90s. You can't see um, a lot of where, where the Matrix kind of stepped um, in and, and drew a lot of those aesthetic influences from. Uh, right from probably Robocop on, uh, the villains being ridiculously like amused by everything and really nihilistically dark in their behaviour. Um, I thought Robocop onwards was a bit like that, so that's less 90s, I suppose, but it was certainly in full swing around here. Uh, I'm not quite sure what else, but yeah, just on the villain side, it felt very 90s. The bands are very 90s, and actually, I think that even if you switch the sound off, 
It didn't just mm. the sound nineties. Mm. It's that their whole. De- it's not even their clothes. It's their demeanor. There was a lot of uh, tropes involving cops as well, like, like the you know, like oh, like there's cops sitting in the car. They're getting the coffee. Oh shit, gotta go when they spill the coffee on him. Yeah, um, <laughs> when he spills their coffee. Yeah, there's uh, also when he, when he throws one of the bad guys like out the window. Like he lands straight on a cop guard just as he's getting out, going, "What the hell?" That always happens. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, with an action trope, isn't it? Yeah. That one? Um, it's quite often in this era, and I'm thinking of Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, a few others like that. It's quite often uh, a black cop in late middle age who just has an air of very near to retirement, and is the only good guy in a force of people who don't care that much. Yeah, yeah. You know, Die Hard's very like that. He's trying to call it in, and all the rest of it, and the the, the level of interest is is variable at least. So there's definitely that. Um, and that in the any with Ernie Hudson, like I'm just gonna call him Ernie Hudson. That's his name. Um, well, I was gonna call him, you know, I can't, Winston. I can't remember his character not, name, but that's Winston. not 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 Murtaugh. No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the actual detective as well. He's very much. He's kind of of the era of um, kind of noir, like hard bit, hard boiled detective, isn't he? He doesn't care. He's like you're done for insubordination. And yeah, just, he just really couldn't care less, and he's very much kind of like, I think it, the the character of the detective, I think, is probably from another film. Is I find he's more aligned to kind of like, as I say, noir hard boiled detectives, but yeah. but it's quite interesting anyway. So, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of yeah. like nineties tropes. Certainly, the Michael Wincott character, it, it's not unlike stuff you've seen Gary Oldman play in this era and stuff like that. Uh, it, you know. Um, kind of european looking i'm always surprised when they open their mouth and start speaking in american accents you expect <laughs> it to be like something out of luke besson he's got a kind of um, interesting look to him hasn't he because he's, he's played a few sort of villains um in, in his time he's quite a you know sort of distinctive character actor as well um he's, he's his got voice that, is great yeah he's got yeah, a really yeah. sort of like deep smokes 40 a day kind of a voice yeah he's sort of distinctive you kind of when he speaks you kind of know but he's got sort of a commanding presence so i'm like here like yeah, he's got like flowing long locks. I think the last films I saw him in, um, oh, there was one of those. Um, oh, what was it? I think it was Hitchcock that came out a few years ago. He was. Um, he was the guy in that. Again, obviously, and I, I was like, who? You know, it was literally a bit part, a bit part. I think he was just cast for his looks. Um, and there was the um, oh god, in the Alex Cross films, along came a spider. Yeah. Um, I lo- I love those the series. I must revisit them. It was a terrible, terrible adaptation of. I was going to say, that, isn't the second one like Lee Tamahori or something? Um, isn't Along Came a Spider Lee Tamahori? Yeah, I think it is. Unfortunately, which is yes. why it was so bad. Which means it's his last film. He went straight from that to Die Another Day. To Die Another Day, that was shite. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> he kept that quiet. I, again, though. he's had a really interesting film career. So like Oscar-winning Maori drama. He was Guy of Gisborne in uh, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, that was it. That was it. But um, no, he was. I had to look good. that up though. Because I just placed him everywhere and couldn't actually name anything, and then it got to that, and I'm like, of course, of course, yeah. that's the one. That, that, that was the first time I saw him was Guy Gibson. Yeah, yeah, that's true actually. But yeah, I think kind of he's kind of, you can see kind of why he gets cast in these sort of roles. Um, I think if, if they did an Alex Cross adaptation properly, they would probably need to need to recast somebody else. And the central villain is kind of meant to be one of he's like the Hannibal Lecter of. Alex Cross Nemesis, for example, and they just, you know, he, he doesn't have as much dialogue, and you know, you've got a really talented actor such as Wincott, who's kind of made a career out of these kind of roles, and he just completely threw it away, and it's just like, oh, it's so frustrating. Um, 
So it's kind of good to see like one of his early early roles here. Um, so it's quite interesting. I, I must confess, of sort of him and Ernie Hudson are the only two people that I recognise. And I was um, like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm. I was trying to think if I. I mean, actually, uh, I I thought I saw um, I saw Tony Todd at one point. Tony Todd is Candyman. Yeah. Mm. If you if you're a Star Trek fan, he's played several different characters in that. Mm-hmm. Probably probably most notably Kern Worf's brother. Um, but there's also a absolute tearjerker of a Deep Space Nine episode called The Visitor, where you see Jake Sisko become an, a man and then an older man, and that mm-hmm. the man the man version of him, the grown up version, is played by Tony Todd. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I really recognised anybody else, if I'm honest, beyond the two you've just named. <coughs> well, I recognised Michael Massey actually, but I, I, I wasn't mm-hmm. quite sure what from. Again, I've I've got a sort of look. You got um. Uh, what his name? Um, he was in Commando. He's been in like twenty four hours. Um, he's the T bird. Uh, not T bird. Um, uh, yeah, David Patrick Kelly. David Patrick Kelly. Yeah. <coughs> he's 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 come out. He's like uh, he's in Commando. He's in. Um, he's even in John Wick. He's the he's the guy. Oh, who, I need to see though. Yeah, he's 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 the guy who like. Um, have you, sorry, Becca. Have you not seen the John Wick films? <laughs> Um, I actually managed to get around to seeing the first one, Ooh. so I'm, I'm nearly I'm nearly halfway there. In, mo- in most po- in most um, pop culture um, references, he, he is the guy who's in Warriors who gives the Warriors come out ah, and that play. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's him. Ah. He, he plays like the uh, the the leader of the gang, so to speak. You know the. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but he's but he, he's in loads of stuff. He's in like John Wick. He's in uh, Twin Peaks. Uh, he's in loads of stuff. He's like you'll you'll see him. He, yeah, he's um, not character actor. He, yeah, he, he he's he's the guy who like Arnie like drops off the cliff in the Commando. Um, you know, he says oh. like, you know, uh, remember I would kill you last. I lied, and you drops him off. Yeah, that's him. I lied. Yeah. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I've seen him in loads of things, but I can't place him in yeah. anything. But maybe that's a might be his quality. Who knows? But yeah. Michael Massey, I'd seen in loads of things. But again, you ask me what, don't really know. But I, I think he is the guy. It says the gentleman here. But looking at the end of Amazing Spider-Man Two, where you get that tease for the Sinister Sticks, which never happened. The guy in the sort of coat and hat with the case walking through the the post credits guy. Mm. That's him. That's him. But Michael Massey actually died uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I think he. I think he may have had lung cancer. And so, um, it was origi- stomach cancer. It's saying yeah. It was originally going to be uh, Iggy Pop in that role uh, as uh, Fun Boy. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, oh, yeah, and it, and for some whatever reason, like he he couldn't make it due to um, scheduling. I think, but he's but he promised to be like if sequels they do one, so that's why he's the bad guy in the uh, in the next film. But can you imagine, like, because of like what happened with Brandon Lee, he could have been the guy who shot Brandon Lee. Cause it was it was that actor, wasn't it? So it was, and it, and he would have been handed the same prop at the yep. same time. Now, it only takes slight changes of sequel of of schedule for things to pan out differently. But if it but if it panned out in anything like the same way, same order, same start dates, same schedule, similar behaviour on set from everybody, so. You know they're finishing in roughly the same place and doing the same things yeah. on the same day. Then yes, he would have shot Brandon Lee dead in Pop. Um, and that's a weird thought. 
That is a weird thought. What did you think of the film, Chris? Just generally? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I kind of like the same. I think sort of same patch. But I, I, I watched it, and while yeah, I agree, it is pretty thin in terms of well, it's just standard average, you know, revenge beyond the grave type type film, and it's very, very nineties, very MTV music video. Um, you know, it, it, it is, it is enjoyable, and I enjoyed watching um, on two parts, partly. Because I enjoyed sort of just looking at Brandon Lee and just sort of seeing what he could have he could achieve beyond this, and it's like, oh well, it's just such a shame because he would he would have had such promise to kind of build upon the legacy of Bruce Lee of his father and actually be a decent movie star in his own right. You know, he had the looks, he can he he had a he had an on screen presence. I, you know, I, I feel, and he had like you know, he's able to do action quite convincingly. So I, yeah, I could actually have seen him doing romantic films as well. Yeah, a twinkle in the eye, sort of thing. Yeah, I definitely. mean, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's he's a good looking guy as well. So he, you know, he had you know, he, he definitely had something. So it's just a shame. Uh, but also, I kind of just enjoy like almost like the, just almost like just a throwback stuff. You know, he's seen all like sort of the action, the action stuff, the um, the nineties grunge bands. It's like yeah. All, all that kind of tropes of just like over the over the top cartoonish villains, um, all that I kind of enjoyed. So yeah, it, it it was you know an enjoyable watch for me. Yeah, just looking at Rochelle Davis, the the, the young girl in this, um, who's now thirty eight, telling you about the passage of time. Um, only ever had a handful of credits. This was her first. Uh, Fifteen years to her next. And then a couple of things in uh, 2016, and then nothing until this year where she's filming something. So yeah, unusual. I, uh, quite often, kids don't really become anything, but it surprised me she has so little work there. She literally got nothing again afterwards, or wanted nothing again afterwards. It's one Could of the be. Two. I mean, to be fair, she's not that good in it, though. Uh, no, I, I, I don't. I don't need to be like, but you know, she's just a kid, so you know, it's not like she couldn't not been a good actress, but. In this, she wasn't particularly good. No, I'd go along with that. So, with that, shall we discuss this film sequentially? I was just going to say, in terms of the music as well, I was looking at the career of Graham Ravel. That rhymes. Um, he did the music for From Dust Till Dawn. But I, I wonder where I where else I knew the name from. Um, obviously, the Psycho Four sequel back in 1990. Um, yeah, with me. But also, like a lot of oh, what was it? Um, Street Fighter, <laughs> Street Fighter movie. Uh, quite a mix of stuff. He hasn't done anything in recent years on the big no. screen. Obviously, growing up um, in the 90s, he watched films like Street Fighter, um, Basketball Diaries, um, Strange Days, which is a big cult favourite of mine. Power Rangers movie, absolute classic. Well, he's done a few with um, he's done a few with Rodriguez, which kind Tango. of this could Tango have been a Rodriguez adaptation. film quite easily. Uh, he did uh, he did Gold, Spawn, another comic book adaptation, Saint. Which Hello, more the, uh... Freddy versus Jason. Yeah, very interestingly. Uh, he's done a bit of everything, though, because there's horror there, there's action there. He's done Three to Tango, which is a really disappointing Matthew Perry comedy. Uh, Pitch Black. Uh, did he do The Chronicles of Riddick as well? Let's have a look. Mm, not too sure. Uh, yes, he did. He did The Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, what else have we got on here? From Dust Till Dawn, you're absolutely right. Don't Saints. think I ever knew that. Uh, Daredevil, um, Saint, Tomb Raider. Yeah. Daredevil, that was an interesting movie. Yeah, interesting is one word for it. Uh, Buddy Boy, that's an interesting film as well. 
Yeah. Worth checking out. He's, he's had a pretty oh. he's had a pretty decent career. He, yeah, he's, Team Ranger, as you mentioned. Definitely done a few things with um, Rodriguez. Uh, Dead Calm was very first film. That was a that's pr- yeah. a pretty tall action. That's um that's really that's good Sam film. Neill and Nicole Kidman with it. with Billy Zane. If you can spot him, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the hand that rocks villain. the cradle. Uh, which, was actually a, which was actually a Curtis Hansen film. Uh, Body oh, of Evidence. Yeah. <laughs> boxing. So he's done erotic thrillers as well. Boxing erotic Helena. Erotic thrillers, and... definitely. But no, I was trying to think, where have I heard that name? Psycho yeah. 4. Why uh, not? Well, fucking everything. He's done a massive load of it's stuff. Bangkok, talking to Nicole Kidman, just before Dead Calm, he did Bangkok Hilton, which was a mini series with her and Denim Elliott. It's really good. Oh. That was a BBC uh, mini series. Yeah. About somebody imprisoned for drugs over there uh it's really really good uh and he's done a couple of video games as well so this is a guy with quite a uh a range but the thing is i only really remember soundtrack to this film not score no that's it i would say for all the goth 90s metal bands it's pretty much you know the soundtrack but the score to it i was sort of like i just that just named that name just jumped out at me um but yeah this is one of those films where you are going to um, remember that the, as I say, the soundtrack to it, um, because of all the grunge and, and metal and goth bands, rather than the actual score. Yeah, his last big screen film was Riddick. Not so, Riddick yeah. Bow. Not Riddick Bow, no. Imagine that. <laughs> he scored well, I know, Riddick Bow. Oh God Almighty! I'm ju- I'm just cringing at the sort of stuff that would go in a Riddick Bow film. Believe me. <laughs> um, I, I do know the difference between the two. It's fine. Yeah, I know you do. It's all right. <laughs> Um, the the first clue something is afoot is is the, the Chronicles of Riddick Bow. That's a sequel nobody wanted to see. Ah, yeah. This is a man whose boxing career was relatively short because when he built a house, he built his bedroom with an ensuite kitchen, not a bathroom, an ensuite kitchen. Ensuite kitchen. He liked to eat uh, in, <laughs> in, in a couple of different ways in the bedroom. As it turns out, he was a hungry boy. Yeah. So. Um, the first sign that something's afoot is it, if I didn't know what had happened, I would just think this is a really odd structure to sort of go through a crime scene where we barely see anything and we cut to a year later within seconds. It, it's clearly they're trying to dance around this scene. Yeah. And they clearly filmed it to be part of the film. The cl- film was clearly supposed to start with a full recreation of what had happened. The door going and who's that honey and all that shit. And yeah. it, obviously they've skipped through all of that. So we start with um, Sarah, the girl's voiceover that basically said, some societies used to believe that a crow would lead you after death to the, mm. the afterlife, basically. And that those crows could hang around and bring you back if you weren't sort of restful, settled, whatever the mm. word was, at peace. And then we just sort of get a load of these strange shots and you see sort of him from the back on his knees about to be shot. Of course, it's his stunt double. And, um, you know, because they're having to restage this because and they're trying to get around it quite quickly. Uh, what, we're, what we've actually seen is uh, he and his girlfriend live together. They're engaged. They're about to marry. We see um, one of the uh, wedding invitations. They're due to Again, life uh, mirroring or being mirroring art. Uh, he was due to marry one week after the filming uh, of the crow stopped, and of course he had three days left of filming. 
So he was about 10, 10 to 12 days away from getting married, Brandon Lee, when what happened happened. And this is obviously mirrored in this film that uh, it's what's called, what's the night called? It's basically there's a load Devil's of fire. Night. Devil's Night. Basically, there's a load of arson that night. It's the day before uh, Halloween. And somebody basically, a load of people break into the apartment or they're let in, but they, they, they say something about letters of complaint and then basically rape and murder the pair of them. Uh, although the lady who is called Shelley uh, does uh, live for a day and a couple of days afterwards in hospital mm. with Ernie Hudson sort of watching over her and that will become relevant later. So that that's sort of it for the start. It's, you can see they're trying to shoot around something here with hindsight, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think the film does a reasonably good job of of doing that because it it kind of has that almost like nightmare, uh, bad memory uh, element to it because it's kind of choppy. You, you kind of like you just sort of see flashes from point of view perspective. So if it, it does feel like that was that's like someone's like reflecting back on it. Um, so it, it, it does kind of get away with it to an extent. I mean, I don't know how it would have, it would have, I don't know if it played, it would have played like a normal scene. I don't know, but uh, I think it would, cause they had to get around. But I mean, CG at the time we were like, isn't that clever? They can recreate him in mm. CG. Well, the actual visual quality of this tells you, no, they couldn't. I mean, this is five years before they did a couple of like short sequences with Oliver Reed and, this is years before CG was ready, and this is a small budget as well. That's why this scene has a you can barely see what's going on quality to it. But yeah, we basically see a gang rape and murder uh, him. He gets thrown out the window, I think, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, she's raped and left for dead and basically taken to hospital. I think she survives for 30 hours. <clears throat> and her, only Hudson's character, uh, which he's called Sergeant Albrecht, but we'll just go with Ernie Hudson, uh, stays with her the whole time. Uh, but yeah, within within a couple of minutes of screen time, we're on to one year later and mm. his grave. And don't we sort of see him kind of like rise up from then? The, yeah, the crow sort of comes in and sort of taps on the grave a couple of times and he comes out of the ground. Hasn't decomposed at all. <laughs> yeah. He's looking in good nick, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's only, how, it's only how been a year, did, Dave. Come on. How fresh, how fresh did he look before he died? <laughs> he must have looked like a Colgate advert or something. He <laughs> probably froze his body skincare or something. Advert, yeah, so that's always made me laugh that he comes out in that state, but he comes out of the grave. Yeah, just basically, it's a bit Kill Bill 2 style, you know, when mm. she comes out of the ground. Um, it's literally one year later. It's October the 30th, the following year. I think that's that's it. I think Sarah already visited the graves. She was obviously close to the pair of mm. them. She's a young girl of about 13, 12, something like that. He was um, a rock musician himself, so he was like, I don't know, I don't know how, like, it's never established like if they were, like, big or anything at all. That's but... the thing. It wasn't established if they were successful or mm. if they were... And this is a bit of a nondescript... I mean, it's meant to be Detroit, I think, but it's not overly mm. clear, and it's not obviously a re real representation of the city. So it could be any city anywhere. Mm. He's not at a hot, hot. He's not living in a hotbed of culture anywhere, and he's living in a relatively small sort of top floor apartment. So, the, the, I'm tempted to say he hasn't exactly hit it big yet. But I suppose that's supposed to add to it all that there's an air of like uh, lost because um, you actually see his his sort of dead fiance a couple of times and later in the film, and she's very young and very pretty and all the rest of it. And there's a sense of like lost potential in both of them. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I think there's like just the essence that she's like an innocence that's just been like sort of taken almost. Yeah, I I I, I do want to I mean like in the original comic, it, I think all that sort of stuff about him being like a musician is just not in it. It's just he doesn't even have a second name. It's just he's just Eric. He's just a guy. Who, and then, <sighs> it feels a bit focus group to mm. me. Yeah, particularly the era the film's made in. It's a little bit focus group. He's a musician. All right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, he can play guitar, like you know, midway through the film. So, <laughs> yeah. Pity he didn't go or George Formby do a little, do a little, <laughs> do, do, a, do a little ditty for us. Yeah. Where do we go from there? Eric's come out. Does he go straight to his apartment? Well, no. He, you know, he's he's still introduced like sort of. Um, Eric, uh, not Eric, uh, Ernie Hudson, and um, <laughs> and and uh, Eric uh, is, and Ernie. <laughs> yeah, is the girl? Um, <laughs> uh, is is the girl named Sarah? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you sort of you see a connection now because he's getting a hot dog and and things like that, and uh, you know, he, so you get established, get that established. I don't, you don't think he goes to the apartment straight away. That happens like almost like midway through, I think. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, you sort of you, you get you you see you meet basically what the. Um, I thought he went back there before he painted his face. Yeah, you have um, you get introduced like sort of like the the gang themselves, like they're at the bar, like yeah, the... who are totally interchangeable as names. That is a flaw in the film. They're they're just you know bunch of assholes. It doesn't matter. Yeah, only really two of them stand out. Um, Top Dollar Michael Wincott, and again I'm looking up his name. I've seen the film twice in the last week, and his name's kind of an irrelevance. Um, and obviously Michael Massey uh, stands out partly because he goes fairly early, partly because he's with Sarah's uh, mother, mm. uh, and partly because I think, fortunately, you can't avoid what happened off screen. Michael Massey accidentally shot him, mm. so he stands out. The rest of them kind of don't. Well, you not got, really. got T Bird, uh, which is a uh, David Patrick Kelly. Uh, you got Tintin. Uh, you got Fun Boy, and you got um, Skag. I've got to, I've always got to kind of look those names up though yeah. they don't stick with me at all. He, I, know, I know he goes Tintin does. Uh, well, I think if you asked me in six months' time, I wouldn't remember. But as I've watched it recently, Tintin's name stuck. Yeah, that's the first one he comes across. Yeah, that's the guy with the knives. The, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Boy, obviously. Um, yeah, and Skag's like the other one. He's like he's kind of like a simpleton. Uh, yeah, he is. He's the one who says that wasn't me at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When when they're in the room uh, where where he does get sort of shot several times. Okay, so um, he does go to his own apartment and has some flashbacks, and he mm. makes his face up. Yeah. Is yeah. there ever any explanation as to what that's meant to represent? We don't. We see him. We see a mask that he puts on for for his girlfriend as mm. a joke at one point. I think it was like a. I forget what it was now. It's kind of like a. It wasn't Phantom of the Opera or anything, but it was like a white no. mask, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it's just kind of like with the black lines. You know, down I mean, it's eyes. great as a style. Mm. I mean, it's really great. I'm not quite sure what that was meant to be and, and why, and why that something of the crow. I don't know if it's to mark himself as the undead. I really don't know. I think he's being guided by this crow, that the mm. crow, well, we know he's being guided by the crow, but I'm trying to actually ascertain what I got direct from the film as obvious. It's meant to be his. I, I think so they do too, obviously, as you, as, you, as you were telling us, like at the start of the film, they kind of guide the soul to the afterlife. But obviously, where there's anything, where there's unfinished business or any anger or upset left over, it, it, it returns to 
the spirit so i don't know to, what, to, to to this kind of this our plane as it were i think um, this so is i wonder is it a do. soul perhaps i think you do this is how you do a brief encounter sequel <laughs> brief encounter two just the tip which have, have him brought back from the afterlife because he has unfinished business because he didn't get to give her one. Oh, <laughs> but he didn't die. He went to Africa or India. Yeah, he went he, abroad. Yeah, but he dies of something nasty over there or something. Syphilis. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't stop him banging everyone he else. Died of dysentery. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how you do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could stomach a sequel if one came out. I don't know. Just the tip. Yeah. I'd rather they would live in the 40s and, Fair enough. and maintain this relationship that they have. Uh, yeah. He goes to Tintin first. The crow seems to be sort of telling him where people are. That he's yeah. had a flashback to what's going on. He he's, he's almost gets like guided. He's like a newborn at the when he first gets out. So he's kind of like, well, remember who you are. Remember what happened. Uh, you know, th- that, kind of, that kind of thing. So it's almost like, like, um, I, he, like he, 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 like he's like been reborn in his new world, so he has to sort of like uh, reestablish himself. And goes, oh, okay, well, this is my purpose now. You know, it's not just like from the from the grave and like, right, let's kill some baddies. <laughs> he's like, he's like he, he, yeah, he's almost like sort of, I'll, I'll reconnect with like who I was or you know who I remember I was. What am I here for? Fucking people up. All oh, right, okay. Cool. <laughs> Where do I go first? Right, got you. <laughs> Who's this guy? Is, is he one? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he's one, right. Um, pretty decent sequence, this, because it gets across that he's um, able to dodge things quite quickly. Mm. He's definitely got enhanced reflexes because he picks a gun out of the air. He, he knocks another one out of the air. Um, then he gets into the knife fight earlier, literally. He catches every single one. I, I, I like his entrance, how he just, like, it's just, you know, it's set in, like, a dark alley, but he's it's at the top of, like, a building, and he just, like, casually just, like, Falls, falls down it. and then just starts yeah. laughing. It was like in like really haunting, like um, it's almost like a horror movie in a sense. You know, if if only like the the person being um, chased was nice, or you had yeah. before, <laughs> but you don't. Um, yeah, and he kind of comes across like the Grim Reaper and this kind of just casually. Um, yeah, he basically starts throwing knives at him mm. and all that kind of shit. And he's able to dodge one, he's able to knock one out of the air, and he's able to catch the other one between his two mm. hands. Uh, and then throws it back, puts it in his shoulder. Uh, yeah, so he basically just fills him with knives, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's later said that he put knives in all his major organs in alphabetical order. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure where they got that detail from, but I'm like, how do they know? Uh, yeah. I, that didn't make sense, and I thought that's really overreaching. That's yeah. meant to sound. That's meant to sound both creepy and what's the word? Surgical, kind of mm. um, methodical, yeah, sort of kind, of, kind of double-edged. There's no emotion it, it? in it. He's going to methodically do this, and it's yeah. just like that makes absolutely no sense. But anyway, that's okay. Um, and he's got. He he's basically uh, pawned a, a ring, hasn't he? There, yes. The ring that he was going to give to Shelley. Now. The, has the pawnbroker got it at this point? Has he? Yeah, yeah. So it would have been a year ago. So it, it was, it was like the guy he always goes to. Essentially, he's like established as like that pawnbroker. He's he's the guy who's like been in loads of stuff. He's been in uh, Miller's Crossing and and things like lots of like Coen Brothers films. Um, uh, what 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 else has he been in? Um, I'm not sure. What's the character? What's the actor called? 
it's John Polito. It's John yeah. Polito. Was he's passed away now by the look of it a couple of years ago. Yeah. He, he, only, he only made it to 65. Uh, died from my, multiple myeloma. Let me look at what I recognise him in. Uh, yeah, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. So he's worked with the Coens a couple of times. The Rocketeer. Oh, yeah. Um, which I have seen now. Yeah. He was in, uh, what else? Well, I'm just going to pick the things I really definitely know. Murder, she wrote, obviously. Um, <laughs> he was on a few episodes of Homicide Life on the Street, which was kind of the same time as NYPD Blue, so it lived in its um, shadow, really, but it was supposedly very good. He was in the Hudsucker Proxy. I love the Hudsucker Proxy. Have you seen it? I well, do think I've seen that one. Not Tim for Robbins ages. Tim uh, Hula Hoops. It's really good. Um, I really do want to see it, though. Big Lebowski. Robbins. Oh, classic. Big Lebowski. Um, what? Peter Bides. Uh, Chicago. NYPD Blue, but I think everyone... Lot, lots of TV. Lots of, like... Lots of TV. Roseanne. Green, Green Mile. Ah. Oh. Uh, I think I might be able to place him in the Green Mile. Stuart Little. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. What else? Let's have a look. Really? Yeah. He probably didn't play Stuart. The, the, the tailor of uh, uh, Pan- Panama. No, I didn't think it's probably been a children's film. The tailor of Panama is a really good film, but I haven't seen it for 15 years or more. So mm. I can't. I remember place it being it brilliant. There. It's really good. But then it has in it. Well, I've given Bros a hard time, but he's terrific in that. Does, does he You're purse both. his lips in that? No, he's really good. Well, I can't swear he doesn't, but if he, he did... He all the way through and goes, hmm. He's, no, he's very, very good in it. I mean, I'm not saying... I, I might not enjoy it now. I've noticed all these ticks and they bother me. But <laughs> he, he played a real sort of... A real asshole in it as well. And it was... Just, yeah, I think it was kind of like the... Not anti-Bond, but kind of like a far far away of Bond as you can get. Yeah. So... He's played Commissioner Loeb in a few Batman adaptations, including Batman Arkham, Arkham Origins, the game. Ooh. Batman Year One I'd seen. Uh, but yeah, so he's done some voiceover work as well. So yeah, I do know him. A um, little bit wasted here, really. But I suppose the film does. The film's got such a tight running time; it doesn't spend too much time on anything, really. No. Yeah, no. Some... In terms of in terms of you saying that the film was sort of quite thin, I think it's kind of it's got a very tight running time, um, and it, its editing is, is quite proficient. But I think it's as we're kind of talking at the top. Uh, well, at the top of the show, but anyway, I think um, a lot of this, the content in this film comes from its sort of symbolism and things like the the Raven and the Crow and kind of what they symbolise. And you know, I think that's where a lot of the the main meat yeah, of the film comes they, from. I think they do reference the Raven quite often because well, his name is Eric Drake Draven. Yeah, the Raven, the Raven. <laughs> you know, of, of the Raven. Oh God, I'm just imagining that in like Simpsons Brown Boys or something. Eric the Raven. <laughs> You can imagine the pitch meeting, can't you? Like, okay, well, the crow, that's kind of like, what, what's, what, what's gothic about a crow? Well, there's a gothic poem about the raven. Okay, yeah. well, we can, we can quote that in a film. Um, what, 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 what's his second name? What could it, we'll go, what rhymes with raven? Stick a dirt in front of it. Like, yeah. Apostrophe raven. This could have had John Craven in it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 He would be he would be presenting country file. Um obviously his girlfriend's called Shelley, Percy Shelley, romantic poet poet. Um obviously married to Mary Shelley, author of you know, of Frankenstein and one of the very early like gothic novels as well. And it's just all about the symbolism and really, really big telegraphing, things like mm, that. Yeah. 
Yeah, so he so he comes in, he's quoting the Raven, he's like sort of like, Did you hear me rapping? That that kind of thing. Uh, and you know, and the you know rap, rap, rapping, never yeah. more. I mean the the guy's good as a scuzzy like pawn shop owner and he's and I, I love his reactions of like fuck me, fuck me. Oh, no, oh, no, it's not fuck me, it's a oh shit on me, shit on me. <laughs> Uh, you don't swear that much. You just can't do it. You what? You, you can't. You, you can't swear properly. No, but it it it, it, it is like kind of like yeah. You would we just basically just sees him just like heel in front of him after shooting him. It's like oh fuck. He's like oh crap. Uh, what the fuck do you do? Um, so yeah, he sort of he gets this information from him, uh, blows the place up, tells tells him sort of send a message that I'm coming kind of thing. Um, and 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 takes a guitar, basically. Great. <laughs> I don't know. I never saw. I know he was a musician, but I didn't really get the point of that. But all right, fair enough. I, I think it was just you know more just. I don't know. It's just an aesthetic, isn't it? Really, if anything. Um, and this film is very very into its aesthetics, which isn't really meant to be a criticism. It's fine. It's okay. But um. I mean, it's look. It's ninety minutes. If it was like two hours, you think, oh, for fuck's sake, have something more than, you know. But if it's ninety minutes, you think, oh, okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it's fine. Uh, I really don't have any great criticism of it. Uh, you expect films from this era to be very aesthetically driven, anyway. That's just what they were back here. Particularly, I mean, you've got to bear in mind, MTV launched in what nineteen eighty four. So you mm, think by the true. time you do a few years of that, and then you get like a go at something on TV, and then maybe a small film. This is in the sort of era that you'd expect an awful lot of yeah. like music video directors to start making their name. Yeah, you know, there's only a handful like Ridley Scott who were really ahead of the curve on that sort of thing. Yeah, I think even something like Top Gun was probably like the, f- the first like MTV film that I can think of in that sort of grand like pop music video, um, but put on the put on the big screen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it, it it's it's okay though. And this sequence is kind of creepy. It is kind of, I mean, at this point we don't really know that this guy's a serious criminal. We just think he's a pawnbroker. I mean, he don't get me wrong. He looks a bit shady, and the place he's in looks a bit shady. But we don't know for certain. Being a pawnbroker is a perfectly it's a perfectly legal profession. And when you think he goes in there. And like fucking torches the place. That always struck me as a little bit excessive. There, there, what I think I did notice is there are casual. I mean, because you do get the sense that he's working. You know, obviously he, he, he knows Tintin well and knows think where the stuff is coming from. And there's just a casual kind of like re, like reference. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, your paedophile type type thing. So it's just like the, the idea of like all the bad guys in this are just really grotesque and just those you know. In the most evil way possible. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I did, I did, I missed that in previous um, viewings, but this viewing, I've, I did sort of. Oh, hang on, did that was that just like a, a callous insult, or did, or, or they hinting that this guy's actually a paedophile? Uh, yeah, they, it, it just seemed that sounded rewritey to me. That yeah. just sounded like this. We haven't justified this. I just call him a paedophile. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's just one of those things where like he just establishes early on that yeah he, he shouldn't feel sorry for him. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, it's it, it's all right though. And again, we're we're talking about it. It it, it none of this is taking too long. Hmm. This is over quite um, quickly. 
Um, and it is just about, I think, getting a warning out there. I think that's what he's trying to do, get a warning out there. Mm. Um, and I suppose the film actually does that pretty well. Yeah. So uh, wh- where do we go to next? Um... Oh, from from there, um, I, I always thought he effectively went straight to Fun Boy. We got, got sort of Fun Boy in a bar picking her up. And then... Um, and then it's straight to uh, he basically takes uh, th- Sarah's mother home. Yeah, doesn't he? Um, doesn't he have the first encounter with uh, Ernie Hudson? Yes, I can't think of the context of that now. Um, is that at his apartment? Does he actually go? No, to his... no, I think that's later that on. Yeah, like he sort of he, he kind of like just uh, runs into him and then just like kind of like a short hint that he's yeah. something to do with that murder. Yeah. Okay, that's before we go to the sort of drug taking and all that stuff. Yeah. Which I always think is ludicrously overdone. I mean, you've got like a criminal gang that's effectively um, uh, running the city. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Dominating the city. And yet they all live in like really shitty conditions with shit up their arms. Do you know what I mean? Well, they're basically burning everything to the ground. You're thinking like, I mean, it's in this kind of nightmarish world where like, um, you know, these villains are like, of just living in in practically next to school. everything just looks dirty, but then like you imagine that well everything would be because if they make it a tradition to basically destroy everything that 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 gets developed, then well there wouldn't be any nice things. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, well, so, yeah, so basically I think the next scene is, is the fun boy bit where you're like you know fun boy scene that like, is basically pumping. Um, like pumping in, pumping in several ways, yes. Yeah, Sarah's <laughs> mother with like you know, uh, heroin and sex. And um, do, do you think like he puts like the syringe in one hand and his dick in the other and offers her a choice? Like, <laughs> which one do you want first, love? <laughs> which do you want to be pumped with first? Is he gentle with the pumping? I mean, when he draws it out of her arm later, I did look at it and think, is that heroin? Or it does look a bit spunky, doesn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I, I can't speak to what heroin actually looks like because, you know, obviously I've, I've uh, yeah. never had the stuff. but uh... yeah. And I've never injected spunk into my arm either. No. I haven't lived really, have I? <laughs> no. But now you think of it, I can't... I don't know. I, 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 don't know. I mean, I, I always thought heroin looked brown or... Or, or, or at least, you know... Whatever. So or, or, we're, not, we're not knowledgeable on guns or drugs, to be no. honest. But there you go. So Fun Boy, yeah, this is... Um, I, I always think he's the skankiest of any of them, to be honest. Mm. Um, and yeah, this, yeah, of course, he's got sort of a drug-addicted woman there who, you know, it's just... It's pretty horrible. And it's Sarah's mother as well, mm. who's, who's no kind of mother. No wonder she's being looked after by kindly, you know, neighbours and a cop. You know? Yeah. She's like, um, like almost like sort of, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say shy and retiring, but just kind of just a bit like nervy. She's um, very passively played. She's a bit scared of everybody. You yeah. know, there's a lot of dangerous people around her. Uh, yeah. So obviously Eric turns up, all sort of precursed by the crow as usual. This was another place where I thought, is this where he died? Mm. But it isn't. Yeah, I think he kills Fun Boy first, doesn't he? But this has, this has a terrible effect. He shot through the hand, mm. and that hand doesn't look in the same frame at all, does it? As his head, it just—it's a very, very cheap-looking effect. Um, but his reaction as he laughs, as it forms back, is pretty cool. Yeah, 
I do, I do like Brandon Lee in this quite a bit. I see that scene kind of took me out a little bit, just with that, that special effect. It's really bad, thought, isn't it? I wasn't convinced. But, but no, his, his reaction, I, I think, is, is spot on. Um, as you said at the top of the show, Chris, I think had Brandon Lee lived on, I think we would have seen him become like a really solid um, action star. Um, I get the impression this this is probably going to offend a lot of martial arts fans out there. But I Why would it offend them? No, he's well, going to be great. He is, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I just got, my, my impression of like martial arts movies just because I've, I've seen like go a on, do, do your impression of, of martial arts movies. You know, just <laughs> <laughs> my impression of a martial arts movie is judo <laughs> 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 chop. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very much very much like a cult a cult following. Um, but it's, they're kind of very much like all of the, a veneer, all of their own. Um, and you kind of get people sort of like, as I say, like, well, like it's, Disney it's a or Chuck Norris, it, people yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, it's a very kind of, a very cult kind of genre. That, that's just my impression. Um, but obviously having watched like a lot of Asian, uh, Chinese, Korean, Japanese cinema and that as well. Asian babes. <laughs> well, you, you've watched those, Dave. Well, having read a lot of Asian babes back, what did you learn? I've been watching a lot of um, Tony Young's Inner Thighs, thank you very much. Um, Sorry? Things like, um, oh God, I can't remember what it's called. The Departed is based on. Um, oh, well, Infernal Affairs. Yeah, Infernal Affairs. Yeah, that, that trilogy of that trilogy of films, yeah. things like that, for example. Um, but as I say, yeah, that's kind of like I kind of get the impression that it's very much of a cult thing. Whereas I don't know. I, I think he would have probably gone on to become more of like a, a general kind of action star rather than not marginalised, but very much a cult, a cult hero. I think. But that's just my impression, anyway. I'm sorry if that offends people. So I just I don't have a very deep you know deep understanding of it unfortunately. I don't think it's I think it's really difficult to say because I mean if he tried to stay within a very strict sort of martial arts structure then maybe, but we we've no evidence of whether he would have done that or not or whether he would have tried to have some breakout crossover appeal. I mean we we know you he's know. he's done two or three films that are like say martial arts based well two two that definitely are. I like, wouldn't class this as martial arts. Yeah. So for his first, so for his like basically he's sorry, his most mainstream film, should we say, that one that was going to be more of a big break for him, yeah. he, he does something that doesn't have practically any martial arts stuff in it at all. It seems to me like, yeah, he doesn't want to be pigeonholed in, the, in that aspect. Not to say he wouldn't ever ever do it beyond this, but it was just like, no, I don't want to be like, have it be strictly my thing. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely true. I, I, we, we cannot know for certain. Uh, my gut feeling is, though, that this didn't scream martial arts to me, but it's the only thing I've seen. But if this had, we can't, again, we can't know this either, but had it unfolded under the same sort of way that this film had been picked up by Miramax, this film had gone to cinemas, this film had done at least a good proportion of what it ended up taking. If all of those things had been true, then it's quite possible to think that he would have got some variation in the work he then ended up being offered and i think if that with that being the case i think it's perfectly and i think it's perfectly fair to expect that he would have had quite a varied career a varied career of trying different things Mm. because his big break won't have been a martial arts film in any traditional sense yeah that's that's what i think anyway um but but we can't know for certain. Yeah. He might have gone from that to doing a remake of Game of Death. You know what I mean? You just don't know. 
I don't yeah. know what he was signed to do next, if anything. The guy was about to get married. He might have just gone and dealt with all that before he thought about anything else. Yeah, I mean, I say he could have actually, next film would, you know, if this been a success, he probably would have been like a drama or a rom-com. You know, he he, he probably would have like just gone around like, yeah, I'll just I'll try anything. I'll try anything that's kind of remotely interested me, really. I, th- I think you're very wise to try a range of things anyway. Yeah. And, you know, um, his father's appeal, I mean, his father is known by everybody in, mm. in the world still. But the appeal of his films is kind of niche because if you talk to m- most people haven't seen a Bruce Lee film. They haven't. Now, we, I'm pretty sure we all have. I've seen them all. Um, I've seen some. But you've seen some, but I wouldn't imagine most people have. If they have, they may have seen Enter the Dragon, which is an okay film. That's probably like the one to watch. It's just the best known. I mean, I like Way of the Dragon, but that's partly because it's a bit campy and really funny. You know, sure. he, he, it's set in largely um, in Rome, where he goes to sort of protect this... Um, family restaurant basically like a chinese restaurant in rome um and it's that you know it's being shaken down by mob mob and stuff like that and it's kind of the funniest of his films and it's fairly iconic because he fights chuck norris at the um coliseum um so there's a lot to be said for it there is a lot to be said for it but i i just don't know that well, Bruce Lee had a definite it. way about him, though, isn't it? There's, there's a very much, like, he physicality. He absolutely full of screen presence as well. He had a yeah. hell of a smile. He really did have a hell of a smile. Not necessarily charming or sort of lighten up the room, but just something about it. There was a slyness to his smile. It was kind of cool. So, yeah, he was, he was kind of cool, but he also just had a physicality. Like, when it comes to, like, the fight fight sequence, no one did martial art fight sequence like he did. He had a, he, he had a unique, um, like almost like harness that just sort of like clicked whenever he like did a kick or, or punch and he obviously had the the thing with you know which was very I don't know to this day how good a martial artist he was or wasn't I yeah. still don't know but on screen it looked amazing on screen it was incredible yeah and when he did that like death move or whatever when you like you, you, you stamp on him he had that kind of like that, that variety of just of emotions on his face <laughs> the, but but that, you know that that was like something new. I you know I don't I don't know of anywhere else who does anything like that. You know, other than Bruce Lee. You know, it's you know he had a very distinct thing or distinct way about him that stood out. Like even from a few films, that was it. That's all he needed. But yeah, anyway. absolutely. But yeah, so what all I'm saying is that Brandon will have seen what happened or didn't happen with his father's career, yeah. and um, then had to make decisions about whether he wanted to operate within niches or not. Um, and my gut feeling is I think he would have tried some different things mm. just because I've seen one of these films, you've described the other two to me, and they're not actually that similar to each other. Yeah. So difficult to say. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, but we're, so we're Fun Boy's boy. dead. I'm not quite sure where they go from that, actually. Well, yeah, you have the scene where um, he also, like, sort of takes the... He sort of... He goes to the mother and basically sort of sort of almost just like the Christ type thing like Stigmata with the uh, with the heroin basically sort of like says a lot you know you have a child out there you know yeah mother's name of God amongst, amongst children you have a child yeah that go to her and then from there she's almost like making an effort in the next scene you see her she's like cooking breakfast for her um, yeah which is kind of a sweet scene, at least in concept. It didn't yeah. do a lot for me. But the whole idea is she's trying to do her best. And the daughter's about to um, 
sort of uh, ma- not make fun of her, but express extreme sort of uh, skepticism. And of course, she's about to give up and going, yeah, okay, fair, I'm not really a mother, am I? And it, it's a nice little scene. It, it is, again, that kind of almost thing we see in the equalizer now about just spreading good wherever you go. And yeah. he's, he's taking the time not just to not just to sort of get revenge, but spread a bit of good wherever he goes. That's pretty cool. Um, Justice, isn't it, basically? I think then he goes to see the cop again. He goes to see yeah. Annie again. Um, and then uh, all I really remember of the scene, even watching it today, apart from like finding out who he is and all the rest of it, is uh, he touches him and, it, and he actually passes on uh, to Eric yeah. the sort of 30 hours of memories of Shelley being in agony and the fact that he was there with her. So the suffering and all yeah. the rest. So, and he There's gets that. it in one hit. It's 30 hours of suffering in about half a second. We, um, we start the scene with him like stolen his hat and I was thinking are they going to reference that and then he ends up like you stolen your hat it was like oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but um, yeah it's the scene where you sort of where you get the whole like you know we we get the feeling for the 30 hours um, we also one of the things I actually picked up about the acting as well he kind of he goes like um, Eric or you know Brandon Lee goes to goes to the fridge to get a beer, and I was thinking, why is Carl, why, why is why is the crow drinking a beer? You know, and he's he he goes and he's almost like looking at it in, in a kind of in a kind of like it's not the first time he's like seen one of these. You know, it's one of the things yeah. I I picked up. He's like almost like, is this a beer? Have I got this right? You know, and then he just like opens it, hands it to uh, Ernie Hudson. Uh, so a, there was a nice awkwardness to it. I, yeah. I have to say, I quite liked it. But yeah. it was just, I think it was just like it was something you wouldn't necessarily think of, but I liked that it was there. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, okay, well, he's actually thinking about doing something. You know, he's not just like casually being cool and just walking to, you know, grabbing a beer from the fridge. Go, oh, there you go, there you go, Ernie. Um, it's it's Enjoy. like yeah. Uh, we also sort of get the sense of uh, at, at, after he's had the all the memories passed on to him. Um, he kind of he, he asks, but he gets he pick, he grabs like his cigarette, like, um, drag, has a drag on it, and says, "These will kill you." <laughs> and then like yeah. and, and and then decides and then decides like oh, actually, I, you know, in a very vulnerable way, decides I think I'm just gonna go through the front door like a, like a normal human. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, it's, it's, well, I suppose yeah. the longer he spends around people, the more he's going to sort of pick up societal norms, yeah. even with a short period of time. Some of these ticks aren't really necessary, but they all add to something because he's playing it interestingly. Mm. And, the, and the more I watch it, because this will have been, I think I'd seen it maybe twice. <clears throat> and I watched it a couple of weeks ago. And then we sort of changed our order of recording. We were going to try and put this out as a bonus episode and we can't, we've got to put it out in our normal schedule, which wasn't the idea, but we can't, we couldn't help it. I'm afraid folks. But the point is, um, I felt I had to watch it again because it had been a couple of weeks and every time I see Brandon Lee, there's a bit more to what he's doing and I'm not going to start lauding the dead. Like a lot of people do, Mm. you know, as soon as someone dies, suddenly their talent level goes through the roof, you know? Um, but I'm seeing somebody who's quite interesting as a screen presence. And it's funny, you point out Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee did a lot more samey stuff, but Bruce had it as well. Just looks a bit different, but of course, Brandon is mixed race. His mother was a white American lady. So he looks different than his dad and he has a different quality, but he actually commands the screen really well. 
and he has some little interesting looks about him. You can see his um, dad in there. You know, that's not, you know, it's like, you know, if you'd like looked at a photo, you can go, okay, well, I can kind of see some resemblance. Yeah. But you know, he, he's, he's a good-looking chap anyway. I'm, 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 I'm sure, I'm sure Becca would have uh, would have would have been crushing on him. Maybe. Becca crushes on everyone. She's disgusting. <laughs> everyone, just most people. Just just men. Just, just, just guys you, in general. You should have heard the comments on the on Mary Poppins. It was just absolutely <laughs> despicable. I know. Colin, yeah. poor Colin. I mean, she wanted to record all that, and Chris and I just said no. It's disgusting. <laughs> oh, shocker! Shocker. Lynn Mandel and and uh, we, Ben we got in, We got into a, yeah. Till I pointed out that like Lin Manuel Miranda looks like Gary Lineker after an eating disorder. Change <laughs> um, completely. But the point, yeah. But the point is, we he's probably on, married or something already. We very, very nearly, yeah, because that puts you off. Only marriage stops you, doesn't it? <laughs> um, the point is, we were we nearly you nearly got a bonus Mary Poppins episode because we started talking about the film last night, all of us over Messenger, not even like speaking, just Messenger, on our uh, podcast thread. And the conversation got so bizarre, surreal, and filthy <laughs> that we very nearly jumped on a microphone and actually recorded an episode because yeah. it was under filth. Yeah, I, I, we I, I think I suggested, had this been like a recorded conversation, it probably would have been like a golden episode. But... <laughs> yeah, 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 it was absolutely brilliant. And I just all, thought, all, all, all I say is Emily Blunt as Emily, uh, Emily Blunt as, as Emily Poppins, Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins <laughs> definitely would. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but we went a little further. Yeah, <laughs> um, you guys went way further. Yeah. Well, Chris, really, I, I tried to rein it in. Um, <laughs> you failed uh, to control me. What can I well, say? Well, actually, I kind of, you know, I, I just lulled him into a salt, false sense of security by being way filthier than he was being to try to discourage him by showing him how awful it is. Yeah, but yeah. so all he did was like sort of gave me like a, a bar to raise, raise up to. Him, so. Yeah. I actually read it back afterwards. I couldn't believe the shit we were coming out with. But anyway, it, it's irrelevant now because we're talking about a show that never happened. But um, one day we may get it on us to do something like that just because um, I can't believe we wouldn't say half of that again. But um, yeah, anyway, so uh, where do we go from there? We've He's met the cop. He's got all the feeling of, of what happened. He has understood that the cop is on his side and was there trying to protect Mm. him. Bizarrely, Ernie Hudson is full of, well, I only did it because it was my job and she might be able to tell me something, which was a bit unusual. Um, Does he go to the dock now? Uh, Yeah, we had the um, Gideon, the the pawn shop. You get the scene with where Top Dollar, you know. um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah, um, You you get get that scene where, where you sort of gets the warning and they're like, okay, well, they're aware of a guy, like a an Avenger-type sort of guy, sort of, go, like, who could be trouble. Um, a toxic it's, Avenger. There's got, you know, there's a weird thing that, like, you know, again, with the villains, they are very much like, they make a reference to the fact that um, the his henchwoman is, is a sister, even though, like, they're clearly sleeping together. It's just a yeah. really weird kind of, um, what? It's just turning up the... Um, and she's like a bit of witchy. She's like, yeah. she's into like, oh, cut her eyes out, you know, and and that kind of thing. It's just like really just odd. But that's what they were like in this era. They were, all oh, the right, villains, yeah. were, villains in these sorts of films were always needlessly sort of um, sadistic. 
uh, there would often be like some kind of hint of like perversion, if you like, mm. which is a bit of a loaded term, but you know what I mean. And again, I, if you ask me now, I'm not 100% sure what films I've seen that stuff in before, but it felt like a trope watching it here. And people with a better memory than me might point out, yeah, you'll have seen it in this film, that film and the other film, but I can't readily place it. But I felt like I wasn't seeing anything particularly interesting. I felt like I was watching a very hardcore Luke Besson film. <laughs> yeah. In those scenes, in those scenes, not in anything where Brandon Lee's on the screen he wouldn't do anything like that but certainly the villain side of it was almost like euro trash kind of film yeah i mean they're kind of like dressed in almost in this um like old 18th was it would have been 18th century kind of in this kind of like you know waistcoats and big boots kind of thing uh got, there's a hint of that i don't think it's a literal recreation no no it's but it's, it's that like gothic that. kind of yeah and you and you got um you know tony todd in a kind of like it, it, in a, in a, he's in a suit, but it's not. It's an unusual suit. You know, what I mean? do you know what I mean? It's almost like um, it's very unusual looking. But he's obviously like the smarter, more kind of. But he's hardly in it, Tony Todd. It's a really strange casting thing because Tony Todd, at this stage, would have probably been one of the more famous people in the cast. Mm. Um, and yet, I swear, blind, I didn't even recognise he was in it the first time. I, well, not the first time I watched it, but the first rewatch prepping for tonight i didn't spot him i was watching it earlier again today i'm going oh that's tony todd didn't even notice it two weeks ago so it's, it is an odd role it is an odd role for somebody who is you know tony todd at this stage as i say had already been in um i'd already been in Candyman. it's only a couple of years before but he'd already been it he'd already done a ton of star trek on 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 uh, television as well so uh, in terms of general audiences he was probably uh, the best known and he was also in Platoon, Colours, and a few other things. Um, I think he was in the night. I think. I do need to look this up because I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, he was in the Night of the Living Dead remake, the yeah. one that was done by Tom Savini. So, like I say, he, he will have had more face, facial recognition, if yeah. you like, than most people in this. And it's a blink if you... Well, not a blink if you miss it, but he, he's barely... He's not very memorable in it. He's very much like, uh, oh, it's that guy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's very distinctive looking, Tony Todd. I mean, if, mm. if anyone listening, who's he's got a voice as well. He's got a, look know, him good. up. It, it's look and voice, mm. and because he's got such strong features, he can act through makeup as well. So, as I say, he plays uh, uh, Worf's brother uh, Kern in several episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, and he's instantly recognisable yeah. even under the makeup. He, he's, I he's, remember the. Sorry. No, I was going to say he's also in The Rock as well. I don't remember. Yeah, he probably. Well, he definitely is because I'm looking at the filmography now, but I don't remember in in that. He's, but then. he's one of the the main. He's one of the last few bad guys. Um, he's he's the one that Nicolas Cage like does the Rocket Man line with. Okay, all right. Um, I don't like yeah, soft ass shit. He said anyway. Instantly memorable though. Uh, very 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 suited to voiceover work and and you know very distinctive mm. features. And he's got a voice that can be comforting and warm and kind of chilling at the same time yeah or not at the same time but slight turns and it would would do that but yeah um he, he was in lots of television as well so uh yeah but absolutely like not that relevant to this film for the amount we've talked about it he's he's, he's not really in it that much we've already talked about um sarah and her mother uh, sarah goes to eric's apartment 
Um, and he doesn't immediately show himself, does he? She's just walking around yeah. it and looking at looking at things, and then she says something about missing him or loving him or something, and then he appears in the window. She, she, she's like taunting him, like sort of, like, like almost like I know you're here. You're gonna like sort of at least show show yourself to me, like so fine. Well, maybe you don't care, you know. Yeah. But uh, that scene was done after Brandon Lee got killed. Uh, how I thought Brandon Lee's in it. No, you don't see his face. It's all stuntable. Is it really? Yeah. If you know. look at the scene, like he shows up at the window, and it's just like it's just like see the figure. Because he speaks, doesn't he? Yeah, I think there's a line. I don't, so I may have restated. I suppose you can repurpose lines. Yeah. Can't you? Yeah. Okay, that's really well done then, because I didn't know. Mm. So I mean, like, I'm, I'm sure next time I look, it's really obvious. So she I, had I to do that scene, knowing that about. She's talking to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene like that in um, uh, Fast and Furious Seven, where. Uh, Paul Walker's, uh, Vin Diesel's sister and Paul Walker's partner in it. I've forgotten the name now all of a sudden. Uh, she's on the phone to him and she filmed her side of the conversation long after he died. Apparently it was really, really hard to do. Just, you know, just very, very upsetting to be talking to somebody who isn't there and will never be there again. We must be getting quite close to Eric sort of meeting Top Dollar and doing everything he needs to do there. Yeah, I think we've probably missed the, the doc bit where like he kills T-Bird, which is... Uh... Um, which you know, which you see in itself, it's probably one of the most like effective deaths where you just like, I know you. There's no coming back, and it's almost like kind of just freaked out constantly. Oh, just that, that, it. that in itself is RoboCop, isn't it? Yeah, you, we fucking killed you, man. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's very. Like Ro- there is a bit of DNA <laughs> of RoboCop in this, actually. Yeah. There is a little bit, isn't there? Well, particularly as you think of RoboCop, what's the most affecting scene in that film? Where he's walking around his old house that's now oh. empty, have images of his late wife. Mm. Oh, we gotta do Robocop one day, fucking hell. We are that, gonna have to do it. I'll buy that, that for a dollar. I'll even do the shitty fucking sequels because the first one's so good. Um yeah, okay. Um yeah, we that that sequence is okay, but again, I think even by now the film was not outstaying its welcome, but it was just another one he's gotta kill off. I think by yeah. now I was already right, let's get to top dollar now. But he doesn't. He doesn't realise Top Girl's a target, though, does he? No, I don't think he does. When he um, leaves the Burning Crow symbol, symbol, I couldn't help but think of the Ben Affleck Daredevil yeah. film, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh fuck I completely it. erased that from my mind. Well, actually, it's nowhere near as bad as its reputation, actually. But that bit where he's like carefully painted out the symbol, and you know, it gets lit up in the subway, it's not very good. And I did think of that here. It's not a great choice. To be fair, on the Daredevil film, it, the director's cut is better. The director's cut's an awful lot better, um, and also it was kind of it was kind of groundbreaking at his time. But I won't I won't explain it here. But I actually have quite a lot of respect for that film. Uh, but that's not to say it's good. And yeah. in fact, ba- Batman Begins came along like two years later and made it utterly obsolete. I, yeah, I mean to be fair, on you know on Batfleck, um, he, he's actually quite, at the time he's actually quite good casting um, for that. And uh, also, um, guy came play Kingpin. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect choice at the time. I couldn't think of anyone better for that role. Uh, and uh, Colin, Colin Fowler like just clearly had his fun fun of being Bullseye. So I, I, I can never get. I did, I did like Colin Farrell in it, but I'd really like Mark, Michael Clark Dun- Duncan because mm. just very few people are naturally that big without being mm. wildly o- obese or wildly unhealthily fat or something. Mm. And he wasn't. 
Um, so just from a pure size perspective, it was great. Because if you go and watch the new um, the Spider-Man film, Into the Spider-Verse, Kingpin in that is ludicrously big. Um, against a, Amongst a film that's nowhere near as stylized as you think it's going to be in character design. And I don't like it. I don't like the look of it. It's ludicrously too big. But he is meant to be like very, very big. Mm. And Michael Clark Duncan was. Shame what happened to him, really. Um, so where do we go from there, then? Uh, yeah, so he's like, so yeah, we get to the bit where like you know, um, top top dollars having his his big minions meeting. He's got all his gang members, all his like various like evil people, like in in, a big... in the middle of it, sit round a table in the yeah. middle of a massive room with very little lighting. Yes, <laughs> trying, trying to be a bit hardcore. And, 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 and it did have shades of like naked guns. You got guys with berets and all different and their suits and. <laughs> Yeah. And the Ray Bands. Very almost... Draven Police Squad, and don't let me catch you in America. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Some of these, like, sort of, like, we edit that scene with that music. <laughs> oh, you've got me thinking. Now. All right, um, so, yeah, he, he goes in there. Especially, when, especially when he kicks the guy, he goes in that sort of chair that, like, that rolls back into the window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very good, <laughs> actually. But never mind. I've never found this scene particularly um, easy to watch just because for so long, after, yeah. say, two viewings, I thought this is where Brandon Lee was shot. Um, and, of course, it isn't. Yeah, this this breaks into quite probably the probably the biggest action sequence in the film. Oh, yeah. Because this is quite a mass brawl. Don't really like the way it's staged. It's a bit of a nothing series of little fights, really. Well, it's just your general sort of like shoot 'em up scene, isn't it? You know, it's any it's any action film of this era anywhere. Yeah. Without without a budget to really stage something extraordinary in stunt fashion, so it's fine. But he kills Skank, throwing him out the window, yeah, yeah. and that's really about it. Um, apart from the half sister woman who's saying we can kill him, defeat him by killing the the crow. Yeah, they, and it's they, like, they, they kind of figure that, that out. I don't know. You pulled that out your ass, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, she's into like kind of that kind of supernatural stuff, so you don't know like whether it's kind of partly bollocks or not. But it's just they just seem to be like, well, I've got no other better plan, so fuck it, why not? Well, I mean, a crow keeps turning up. To be fair, yeah, and I suppose they knew they killed him, so it's like something might fairly mystical might be happening here. Mm-hmm. But she says it with a complete like turn of confidence. But yeah, all right. But um, yeah, so they 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 plan to ba- so basically they. They kidnap Sarah to kind of goad him. Yeah, this is back after out. he's given her the the engagement ring. Yeah. yeah. So, because he's he's off his way to the grave, thinking, right, well, my job's done. I've killed the four guys. That's it. Um, and he's kind of because those are the ones he saw in all the visions. Yeah, Donald wasn't there. It was being led by um, it was being led by um, T Bird, fun boy, really, wasn't it? Yeah, T Bird. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that, um, that bloody Travolta. Uh, yeah, this, this felt very um this felt very batman 89 what's coming here where they sort of they go to the church and he's making his way up into another the trope isn't it showdown at a church yeah it's also yeah, another that, 90, that, well, that, TV was, trope. that was in daredevil as well mm. um but they made their way to the top of the tower and i thought all the way through do they know what they're going to shoot when they get there in terms of like the film because I think Batman 89, they made it up as they went along. And this feels a little bit like that. Because what follows is actually really, really underwhelming. 
she they've 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 damaged the crow they've hurt the crow micah's got hold of the crow the crow gets loose and like basically bites her eyes out before she can kill eric so that's like one big action sequence like a reverse shot of the back of her head as she gets like attacked and then he climbs onto the roof has a very quick sort of punch up with eric and then defeats him by passing on his pain i think i, th- I think a sword fight you know is pretty he's got a samurai sword he kind of grabs like a yeah, it looks very Hattaro Hanzi. It look Hanzo, Hanzo, sorry, yeah. from Kill Bill. It really does. Um, he he kind of like he, he's fighting Top Dollar, and um, also we've got like, Sarah's like hanging off the end of the shirt, so he, he kind of gets distracted to go and chooses to try and save her, and Top Dollar like just runs him through. Yeah, uh, and then that's where he does the he hands him like the, the pain, uh, you know, and then dies in a really grim way. Uh, yeah, so he you know the. His death actually looks really, really gruesome. Um, yeah, which, yeah, not bad. It's until. all right. It's all right. It's okay. That's all I can say. It's fine. Mm. I do like the payoff of the of the pain, though. I mean, that that's probably the one aspect of it that's like that really works as an idea. Yeah. The idea that he can share that and pass it on, and it's like, well, this is what you put me through. This is yeah. what you put her through. Um, it, that he's painted as a very, uh, very selfless, very giving character. <clears throat> so uh, you know, his thought would be, "This is what you put her through, not what you yeah. put me through." Um, and then that's it. He kind of makes it, goes back to the grave, has a conversation with Sarah, and that's about it, really, isn't it? Yeah, he sort of returns back to his um, his his old missus. He's like waiting yeah. for him. You do see her, yeah. <clears throat> you do see her. Um, it's a good job she had a, like a bodysuit on underneath because the lighting's rather unfortunate. You would have seen a lot there if they hadn't dressed her properly. <laughs> but she's um, there's kind of a sweetness between them, even though they get virtually no screen time together. There is mm. kind of a sweetness between the two of them. You get that with the flashbacks, don't you? Of like of the life they had before. You know, you get yeah. that. You get that proper like young love, and she's very angelic. You know. Yeah, she appeared in the Red Shoe Diaries the same year as Woman on Train. <laughs> That must have been a big role. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it, really. The crow. Um, Ed's back to his grave and he's now at peace. And, and then you have uh, a huge, uh, a popular soundtrack. A popular soundtrack. Yeah. Popular, popular from the 90s. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of final thoughts, I, I haven't got an awful lot to add. I was, I, I have to say, I was a bit concerned when we came in tonight. I, I was happy to do this for you know anyone and we'll, we'll cover any film you want within reason you know providing it's not you know too good well porn what can you say about porn in terms of reviewing it well done <laughs> young man um well done you know, so, so yeah <laughs> oh, all finished lovely um yeah so no i, I don't think we could redo that but you know if it's particularly gruesome becca can be a bit funny with horror it's not really massively my thing either so there's things we won't want to do but I, I was happy to do the crow but my worry when i watched it was like i say you could you can actually toss out the 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 whole concept and execution of the film in about 30 seconds wait this happens and then that happens and then that happens and then that's it you know it, it's it's relatively thin so and of course the very first shot of the film low res fire i really thought what we got what we got here what did this director do again oh christ gods of egypt you know i'm not yeah. convinced this is going to be any good 
Uh, Ernie Hudson is kind of a stock character we see in so many 80s and 90s uh, uh, films like this. The sort of, you know, the, the, the beaten down cop who's near to retirement and all that kind of thing. Um, the, the villains are a bunch of stock characters as well that are a kind of Robocop style, almost ludicrously um, sadistic. But off the back of that, it's easy to say, and I've had to watch it a couple of times to see it, that actually this film survives because of a really, really top performance from the leading man. And it's so easy to say because he died and we want to give him some credit and all the rest of it. But there's a lot going on in that face and behind the eyes, and he moves very well as well. So uh, he he has elevated what is, I think, a directed-to-video to film, if we're honest. But he's, he's elevated it into marginally worthy of uh, a cinema release and actually because he's so good in it um and supported by a couple of good people it has transcended that and ended up a pretty decent 90s uh, 90s actioner but so 90s it hurts becca yes all of the above um yeah i must say kind of going out going up going into this film um and you looked to nothing or i knew kind of about the makings of it and the surroundings of it um and and the untimely death of um of brandon lee um but yeah, coming out of it i now know a lot more um but, you know it was an enjoyable experience as i say it's one of the most 90s films but with many of 90s tv trope um and lots of unforeseen connections of, of films that we've covered before and discussed before on, on the show um but i the bottom line of this will probably be it's a real education for me um and i'm pleased i can now at last say i've seen the crow and ticked it off my list are you now going to watch his uh, previous action films, Rapid Fire and Showdown Little Tokyo? <laughs> I might, I might track those down actually, um, just to kind of you know see what what could have what could have happened. I mean, I mean, uh, Little Tokyo is just you know is watch it as a, as a, a, a cheesy you know kind of fair from the director of Commando, by the way. Um, well, that's actually just piqued my interest, if I'm honest. <laughs> Well, you do. Commando fucking mental, and it's really funny. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is like completely just obs- like obscene, like in, ter- in terms of just how like it's almost like comedic, like. But um, it's ludicrous. I mean, he'll he'll run into an open square, surrounded on all sides, and yet nobody hits him with shit. All it is utterly ludicrous. And, and, and yeah, and you, and you got and, but the best thing is. Colonel John Matrix. Yes. John Matrix. That's, just, that, that's right up there with Monkfish. Yeah, so, Monkfish. Ba- so, so basically oh so you got like Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren running around with um, with uh, Tina Carey uh, you know, from Wayne's World. <laughs> uh, <laughs> being hunted down by the bad guy from Mortal Kombat and uh, and his henchman is the same henchman from Turtles. So, uh, so it, it, it's like, oh, oh my true. God, it's like it's that guy, that and, it, and it's obscenely violent and obscenely absurd. Um, and Rapid Fire is very kind of like your, your standard na- early nineties action film. Rapid Fire looks as generic as shit now in hindsight. But I will say it's definitely worth watching. Just you know, if you just sort of take take all that aside and just go like, well, I'm just going to watch Brandon Lee for his you know presence as as an actor. And his ability to do action, you'll be like, actually, no, the actions he's are pretty decent. So it's what I would say it's worth watching just to sort of like see how good he is at the action. Yeah, because obviously, had he been around a lot longer, he would have had a longer career. It, it is a bit like, you know, if, if Bruce Lee had literally done like the big boss and then died, you, you can't look at it and go, 
well, I like him if I like the big boss, or if I don't like him, yeah. he's shit. You know, if it's his, it's his first American film role, it's saying here. I don't know what he did in, in Hong Kong or anything like that. But, it, you know, you don't know what he would have gone on to do. Certainly The Crow, I, I suspect, would have elevated him somewhat. Yeah. Although we cannot guarantee it would have ended up what it was. Um, from what I'm seeing here, he's pretty good, though. But your final thoughts, Chris? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's pretty much like everyone said. It's, it's very 90s, very MTV, though, are my main thoughts by watching it but you know it's it it, it goes for a, a load of action movie tropes which i'm absolutely fine with uh i i do think brandon lee covered something uh that actually was pretty decent in this it's a shame it's a shame I, I i could see the potential i could see there's a there's a definite warmthness to him at times you know i mean you know when he's not being the eventual angel he's you know there's a, there's a, there's a kind of like warmth to him when like when he like when he when he smiles about something you know or he you know has a bit of vulnerability so you know there's a lost potential which is like which is the ultimate shame you know there could have been more more he could have given us. Well, he sells. He sells pretty like hard and like you know he could play action, but he also plays slightly androgynous as well. Yeah. So there's there's quite a his operating window would have been quite wide, I think. Mm. And he's a good-looking guy as well, you know. It's it's not he he, he he pretty much and and the fact that he he he's got the the legacy of Bruce Lee behind him as well, so he's got name recognition. So it's like son of Bruce Lee, and he's good-looking. Had actually had some talent and could actually do convincing action as well. You know, he could actually do the kung fu stuff if he decides to do that. So yeah, it's it's just a, a shame of wasted uh, potential. But um, there we are, tragedy strikes, and we have what we have. But there we are. But that's it for the crow, then. Really, uh, just a little sort of bonus outside of sort of continuity. Thank you very much again to lovely Ken. Um, sorry to have kept you waiting so long, but we finally got there. Yeah, we promised Ken this quite a while ago, but there's lots of reasons, not just our our um, hiatus. And obviously, um, although we're putting this out on the main feed at the main time, obviously the priority is carrying on with the series we were doing. So we had to sort of find a find a, a way to do that, um, f- fit this in somewhere. So we've put it in over the Christmas break. So I think that's it from me. I would just say good night and thank you very much, everybody. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to the remake when we get to cover that. But um, <laughs> if that <laughs> ever gets made, Robocop. yeah, if that ever gets made, uh, yeah, and Robocop. Yeah, Robocop's uh, just Robocop's just gone flying up the list because we're all keen. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it after Mission Impossible. So, alrighty then alright so um, yeah so that's it for me you can find me at Cinematronics on Twitter and you can find the other podcast at cinematronics.co.uk um, Dave where can we find you yeah I forgot all of that you can find me at the Pasty Kid 1976 on Twitter and you can follow us on Twitter at expect as a talk you can drop us an email expectstalk at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook and also on YouTube do you expect us to talk you can also find us under the same moniker on iTunes and that's that's your lot, folks. So um, that's your lot. We're, this, we're not used to signing off like this because we've already done the return. Ret- you know, we'll return with in our normal continuity, which this isn't. So we're kind of like we're all right, awkwardly bye. hanging around. <laughs> the See I, I, I guess I'll I guess I'll let off then. <laughs> right, night, I'll... night. <laughs> oh well, it's not the time, right? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night. Oh.